Welcome to the Prime Talk with your hosts, Dan and James. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to Grog Talk. I'm James. I'm Dan. And where are we from today, Dan? We are from the third layer of the abyss, the Forgotten Land. So we're, we're still in the abyss. That's right. Well, because of our circumstance in the world today, we're going to continue to descend into the abyss based on what is happening. And you just found out that, uh, or not maybe just found out, you revalidated that we have 663 layers to go. So... Yeah, I didn't. I, didn't re- I thought it'd be like you know nine planes of hell. I mean, how many can be in the abyss? This this shouldn't take long. That's right. The seventh heavens, the nine layers of hell. Oh well, there's six hundred. Well, this is back to our you know uh, guest from uh, deities and demigods, Jim Ward. If you remember the picture on page one fifteen, uh, you can see. See how there's one that keeps trailing all the way down. That's the one we're in. So that's, that's, we're on layer three now. So it's super exciting. So there you go. Well, good morning to everyone. Good evening, good afternoon. I see a bunch of our folks out there. Um, we've got a pretty, pretty busy show. Uh, let's start with our, uh, have you done any gaming lately, Dan? I have not done any gaming lately, no. Oh. I've been gaming deprived. Okay. Deprived. Well, you know, we have our Grognards Guild online, and uh, I also, so I played two games. Uh, thanks to uh, the Chamberlain of Brandywine, I was an NPC in his game, Rob Ritchie, and I played uh, Fred the Fish, and uh, he, he, which was uh, super exciting, you know, for those who, uh, not Fred the Fish, that Fred the Fish is from that thing. I was, I was Fred the... <laughs> I was Fred the, uh, what you call it? Uh, he, he was an NPC. I was Fred the NPC. That's what I was, so I apologize. I was going to say, Fred, Fred the Fish, that's, uh, yes. yeah, that, that, that's from Borshak's lair. Right, and so Fred, I'm showing the picture, Fred was the torchbearer. So I, I was, after we got done with the show, he's like, hey, you going to play today? You, know, you have time to play? I'm like, sure. Uh, he's like, do you want to roll up a character? I'm like, that's fine. Don't you have an NPC? He said, well, we have one NPC. Fred, the torchbearer. So I would play the torchbearer, and I'm showing my picture of me being the torchbearer. It was super exciting. So I really... Were, were, you, go ahead. were you involved in any combat? Uh, well, I was there. I was in the back with, with my torch. Or, and then later they uh, improved it to uh, a lantern. I had a lantern and a dagger. So I never actually fought. Oh, so you, so you were you were a two-fisted bearer. <laughs> yes, I have a picture of that. So you know, did do you have do you have, did you have the decks to do that? Uh, no, actually, let's see my stats. I rolled them three d six straight down the line, and I think I had a seven decks, eight decks. So I was you know minus two, minus four. So, but here I was with my uh, little decks <laughs> and thing in hand. So, but that was a lot of fun. And then Tuesday, Brian, our DM, Brian, the Captain General from Appalachia, Uh, he ran a one-shot. So again, if you're not playing, I know with this isolation, uh, it's hard to get out and play with folks. You know, it's in most places of the world, that's that's a no-no. So uh, please uh, consider going to our Grognards Guild online. It's basically, you go to the meetup, you sign up, and and either DM Brian or DM Josh will help you out uh, and play in one of their games. Normally they play on Fridays, so. 
All right, great. Uh, GrogCon still moving forward, October 9th through the 11th. Uh, we're looking forward to that. Hopefully by then, you know, the socially distancing maybe only be like five feet or something. So, you know, we, everyone can fit on a table. I'm not sure how that's going to work, but we'll see what happens. Well, I believe Origins, you know, the gaming convention, uh-huh. have moved their date to October. So people are seeing October that's right. as, as a good date. So, so maybe that's, that's a good sign. People, people are now all trying to get in on this October thing. Right, the October surprise. Right. The surprise is if it, everything works out, which we're hoping to. But, uh, you know, if, you're in, if, you're, if you feel like traveling on a plane, uh, come on down to Orlando, Florida. It should be a lot of fun. It won't be. Um, we have Vic coming. We have Carlos Lysing. We have a bunch of other people considering as well. So we're very excited about that. The information's on grogcon.com. Uh, and so, so, go ahead. Wait, so what you're saying is we, we have two confirmed and lots considering. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, personal know. safety. Uh, you That's know. true. They don't want to, you know. They don't want to book a. a I, I wouldn't suggest booking a cruise to here. I wouldn't take a, you know. That's I probably wouldn't do that. But, uh, you know, they they don't want if the if the end of the world is coming, they don't want to tie up their money in a in a plane ticket. So they're they're thinking about it. So we're hopefully this will be, uh, uh, that'll be taken care of. So I see everyone is uh, Chamberlain from Australia's on, uh, Menyon's on. A lot of folks are on. The angry monk, yes. They need to grab their deities and demigods. Yes, you do need to grab right? your deities and demigods because they are, I already see them talking about, uh, uh, you know, your shirt. So why don't you? Well, well, yeah, because this is it's an this is an Easter special. I don't know if people realize right. this, but this is also an Easter special. It's Easter special, correct? And so I have a uh, a shirt that says "Run Away" with uh, the rabbit. From Monty Python, right. you know, standing on a bunch of skulls and a blood. Look, so it's very go delicious, isn't it? That's the, right. the rabbit has blood dripping from its mouth. It's very go delicious. That's right. <laughs> right. They can come um, play with each other. Hello. You, we, <laughs> we need a menagerie of cute white uh, creatures that have blood in their, uh, you know, beards. Yeah, indeed. And you know, it's funny. I was going through. Issues one through thirty-three of Dragon Magazine, as as one often does, and I came across a cartoon. Mm-hmm. And I'll see if if you are able to. Uh, That's pretty good. Is that pretty good? So what it is is it's a cartoon. It is, uh, it's a it's a bunch of uh, uh, party members, and they say. So first it was giant weasels, then giant beetles, giant otters, giant beavers, giant porcupines, crom, where will it all end? And then there, there's a picture of a giant rabbit around the corner. And it is, I, number one, I thought it was funny because it, it's an Easter episode, and so I thought it was fitting. That's right. But number, but number two, there's some truth to it, isn't there? Right. A lot of the, the monsters in D&D are always your regular monster, like, a, like Go Delicious back there. Just a giant size, uh, and so. Uh, but so the, the shirt is because it's an Easter special, and uh, our plan is to recreate the Monty Python the Holy Grail. Scene, That's right, the Holy Grail. And so, uh, hopefully, players online, uh, people in the chat, will assume the role of a, uh, one, a player. One of the yes. So you'll be needing to look up the Arthurian, Arthurian knights or Arthurian knights. The 
the basically the uh, Camelot Knights. So on page seventeen. So you can start perusing them. Uh, are they are they going to actually be the named knights, or are they going to be just the average knight of renown and knight of quality? That's really the question for you. Now, now, now James, you, you you know I do my research. I, I know you do. There were eight knights in that scene. Okay. They are as follows. So these are the only knights, and I know this is for later, so we're just sort of getting Give players a ready. Give a teaser, yep. Oh, should I list them off, and should they now immediately grab one? Right. That's probably what they should do. Yeah. First come, first serve, That's right. right? Yeah. Okay, so here are the following. If people are smart, they've already typed in a name, right? right. What should they have already typed in? Well, King Arthur, I assume. Exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah I would think so. Okay, there were eight. He, King Arthur. Yeah, King Arthur, yes. yes. Go ahead. King Arthur. Um, Sir Robin, who is does not appear, I think, anywhere. I, he's, he's new to the movie, I think. Yep. Um, Sir Bors, B-O-R-S. Mm-hmm. Gawain. Yep. Hector, Galahad, Lancelot, and Bedivere. And I can tell you that four of those have their own entries in deities and demigods. Obviously, Arthur. Gawain, I would Gawain, say. Gawain, yeah. correct. Galahad. Yeah, correct. Oh, and, and the last La- one? Lancelot, I assume. And Lance, correct. So those four. The, so then... Uh, Bedivere, and, uh, or maybe so three, so some of them, uh, Bedivere is a knight of quality. Okay. Yep. And Boars, hang on, so so you'd have to look up, oh, I didn't do as good a job as as I would have. So yeah, Boars is, if you, (laughs) if you got all morning. (laughs) I got all, exactly. We got the whole, we, 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 actually we got all summer. So on page 17, there, it starts to be a list. Yes. And if you have an asterisk, you are a knight of quality. Gotcha. Which is better than an average knight of renown. Right. So you'll notice that... Uh, Boris de Gaines, de Gaines is a knight he, of quality. Correct. And so is Bedivere, is a knight of quality. And I believe Hector, Hector de Maris is as well. So I think the only one we have to that would out. possibly be, would, would be Sir Robin. Now, right. Sir Robin, I believe, was very scared. Maybe people on the chat can remind me. I think he was the one who was very scared of everything. So I think it would be very nice to make him even an average knight of renown, but I, I think I think he should be. So, so those are the eight knights uh, that are available to go up against uh, the Vorpal Bunny that we'll be using, which is the Vorpal Bunny uh, by... You know, Jukai from the Dungeoneer, and I, well, we probably shouldn't get into the details yet because right. I've already been I've already been lobbying you hard for some additional benefits for for me, right. Corporal Bunny. We'll get to that later, but so people should scoop up right who they want to be. They're 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 quite strong. They are indeed godlike. Right. Well, but but this is you know they thought the same thing. Before they were looking for the holy hand grenade of Antioch, so that's uh, and then oh, it's a little bunny, and then <laughs> so we, <laughs> it just lops off. It's amazing. A wee rabbit, well, a, and we have to talk about the stats, and we can get you know we, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Well, but that's the holy what we hand do. grenade of Antioch, mm-hmm. you know, probably I would think a fireball, but you're going to need it to hit, you know, and right. I think that should only come out later. But right, 
Okay, so that's the teaser for what we're doing later. And what's really great about this is this will be more editing for me on the podcast because now I got to splice this in with everything else. So hopefully, uh, uh, he'll will be able to do this uh, later, which will be super fun. Um, uh, we have uh, th- again thanks to our patrons; they make this all happen because the costs of streaming and running the site and all this other stuff, paying for the services, paying for the meetup, that happens because of you all, so thank you very much. And we have a uh, new uh, patron that we have to give a title out to. Fantastic. So, uh, and also, if you go out to the Heraldry, I did take the titles that you and I have, uh, were given, bestowed upon us by our vassals, the Strangler, Empress Strangler, and the Scourge of the North, and now we have our own uh, Heraldry shields out there. And I think you'll like yours. Um, I put a lot of time and effort into making it as friendly as possible. That'd be great. So if you could just send me that link. Really? (laughs) I think I've sent it to you like 25 times, but okay. Probably. Okay. All right. I'll I'll, I'll look back at my old text. No, 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 no. Why don't, uh, no, no, no. You don't have to do that. Don't. All right. So we're going to uh, bestow Adrian Sanchez. You know, we were mentioning that we didn't have a whole West Coast uh, of the United States contingent, but, you know, last week or maybe two weeks ago, Jonathan Becker, uh, who, which, by the way, um, you are very happy with his uh, research on the surprise table. Um, so if he's on, um, let me, uh, as far as he's kind of figured out, and I'll post that on Reddit, his text, uh, not Reddit, on uh, Twitter, that I guess he, he acquired a first edition Dungeon Master's Guide, and he is claiming that I uh, figured out why uh, that table is still not consistent with um, the, the text that's in there. Yeah, consistent with correctness. Yes, yeah. It's consistent in our with opinion, In our opinion. Right. Well, it makes sense. I like what he said. So thank you to Jonathan for that. Thank you very much. But he is the Plague Lord of Seattle, and now we have uh, uh, Mr. Adrian Sanchez, who's in, uh, he's claiming Oakland, California. So there we go. So do you have your dice out? I do. All right. I've been, I've been to Oakland. Have you been to Oakland? I've been to Santa Clara, uh, so I've been close, but not to Oakland. Okay, okay. Because uh, there was some tech conference I had to go to a few years ago. So very nice place. Okay. Now, roll uh, your D30 and divide it by two. 20, which would make it a 10. Okay. Uh, Let me write this out so I can find it. 10, 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10. Well, at least, you know what? It's not a Chamberlain. 1, 15, 14, 13, 12, It's a governor. Okay. The governors are becoming pretty popular, which makes sense because... Technically, they would be governors. Like, we're the president, you know, on our yeah. weird thing, and they're governor. He should reconsider. He should take California, then. He can be the governor of California. Well, I'm sure if we offered it to him, so... Uh, he should take all of the West Coast except Seattle. He, <laughs> he would surround... <laughs> yeah, we have, we have someone else. Jonathan. That's right, we have Jonathan. And actually, we have a, another folks uh, who I've got to... Uh, do we'll have to do soon uh, for Los Angeles. So you know, it's slowly like COVID nineteen. It is yes. slowly taking over the world. Um, we're we're spreading. We're spreading like a bad virus. 
<laughs> exactly. So uh, D30. Okay. 13. Lucky 13. Heroic. That's good. I like that. The governor heroic. All right, another D30. 14. Radiance. Like the... That always reminds me of his heroic radiance of Charlotte's Web, right? Radiant, isn't that the... D15? A 23, so we rounding up yep. to uh, yep. 13? Yep, 13. Emperor, oh, a lot of emperors. Okay, now a D60. Oh, no, wait, I'm sorry. No, no, wait, no, wait. I, my, my math is all rounding up to 12. 12, okay. All right. 1540, sir. Okay, radiance, sir. I like that. I rounded up too much, okay. This is the D60 now. Oh, it's uh, 20, straight up 24. It's a 2 and a 24. 24. 24. 30, 29, 27. 30, 29, 28, 27, 26, 25, 24. Outst 24. Outstanding. That is outstanding. And then the last one is the uh, D30. 28. 28. 30, sword. Okay, excellent. Wonderful. Okay, so. We hit, so the governor, I will pronounce it in just a second, but yes, yeah, so he's, uh, we've gotten, he's, he has the same title like I do. I'm the Sword of Longwood, he is the Sword of Oakland. That's very cool. So, uh, Dan, you, are we ready to bestow upon him the uh, uh, title there, fourth mentioned? Right, let me roll to see if I object. Okay. I do not object. Okay. Here, I, I just text you his, uh, his, uh, his title. Oh, I see it. Yes, All right, so uh, by the power invested in us as the emperors of the Grog Empire uh, and following all standard procedures necessary to bestow a title on a new vassal of the empire, we, the Grog Emperors, pres prescribe and uh, decree the following title to Adrian Sanchez. Adrian Sanchez, and, and go ahead, yes. And you're, you're going to have to do it all because it just disappeared. If you were expecting me to finish it off, were you expecting me to? Oh, disappeared. Second half. Yeah. Well, because I was, yeah, no, that was that was me. I should have clicked on it when it came. I just it was down on my. You really don't care. That's fine. Move along. So that's <laughs> right. So Adrian Sanchez is the governor. His historic radiant, sir, astounding sword of Oakland. Congratulations. The astounding sword of Oakland. That's right. Sounds like a relic. It, it does sound that. I right? found the astounding sword of. Oakland. Yes. I found it next to a dumpster. <laughs> Not near the holy hand grenade of Antioch. <laughs> Excellent. So very good. Welcome. Uh, so thank you to Adrian. And he has some questions he's going to send us, by the way. Uh, he, he's heard you rave about the uh, halls of Tisenthane, has some questions about running it. So I told him you'd be happy oh. to ans answer those. Well, and, you know, that was in, I believe, the May edition of White Dwarf. That's right, which is coming up. Which is next month. Right. So, uh, it's very apropos that he would ask about that. So that will be a good prep. Uh, you can share it with, uh, with everyone, your tips, because you've run it a number of times. And it's a, it's a very fun module. Uh, I, I enjoyed it immensely. All right, so we are now ready for, uh, again, if you like the shenanigans we're doing, please go to iTunes reviews. 
uh, go, you can see us on iTunes or Google. Like, subscribe, that always helps. We like to know that what we're doing, uh, people like it. And it's actually been very, uh, appreci- very fulfilling. Dan and I have gotten a lot of texts and emails uh, and also messages about people saying, hey, we're kind of trapped. It's, you guys are great. We appreciate that. And I don't know if we're great, but we, it is very appreciative that people like uh, what we're doing. So again, thank you for all that. All right, so we're ready to do the random encounter. What you're saying is we've, we've had the uh, COVID bump. Well, this is definitely, well, we had Jim Ward on, Tim Cask on. We, if you look right. at the people coming on, they're, they're like, well, I've finished all my crossword puzzles. Uh, right. I, I reorganized my closet twice. Uh, I guess I'm going to go on Grog Talk now. This is yeah, right. <laughs> it's a very long list. That's right. They finished it. It was it was a list like the layers of the abyss. Right. They've gone through everything. They've organized their sweaters by color, by material. They've done it different ways. And the last thing on there, this email came up. That's right. That, exactly. What everyone's stuck at home. What to do? Grog talk. So we've been um, very fortunate for us. So we're we're getting folks that really I'm not sure we would have gotten if this was the case. It it is it is yes you're exactly right. It is a bucket list item to be on Grog Talk. That's what people are. <laughs> that's what people are putting. You mean like I'd rather kick the bucket or? Well, that's true. It could be kick the bucket or not. But I think uh, many of them are very you know. Well, you Kilimanjaro, know what I think, right? the Grog Talk. Go ahead. Well, I think the fact that we're not well-known is, is, is working to our advantage with landing a lot of these guests. Right. Don't you think? Oh, yeah. They, they, don't, they, they don't know what we are. Yeah, they're like... They, they, huh? It sounds official. Right. It sounds official. They really don't know. But, uh, no, I also say that I think we do a pretty good job interviewing folks. I think the... The format, you do a lot of great research and are the people who are online have very prescient questions. I think it's a very friendly format and um, we, we get to the point, we talk about things that they're interested in. You know, I think everyone's been very complimentary. Uh, you know, like Alan, uh, uh, Jim yes, last week, everyone, uh, Ed Greenwood, people have been super, uh, Dave Whitehall, there have been just, we've had really good conversations. No one's looking at, I don't see them going, oh, you know, Oh, right. got to go. You know, they, they keep talking until we're pretty much done. So, Dan, why don't you introduce our guest? Absolutely. It is our pleasure to have Tim Cask on the show today. Tim was the first TSR employee, and he worked at TSR from 1975 to 1980. And during that time, he edited supplements 2, 3, and 4 to OD&D and was the editor of TSR Periodicals, which, of course, included being editor-in-chief of The Dragon magazine. And he is also the midwife of AD&D, Tim Kask. So. Welcome. <laughs> okay. Wow, that sounds impressive, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is impressive. And then, and, then, and, then, and then there was Adventure Gaming magazine, then there was Gygax magazine, and I, I have uh, been involved with every one of the gaming magazines of any size, um, and uh, they've all sadly gone belly up in this this climate of uh, nobody wants a print magazine anymore. Like yeah. we like crack that magazine open and smell the ink. Yeah, we do. I, we do. I, I love the smell of a good book too. And uh, yeah. here on the Grog Talk podcast, it is 1980 because we are celebrating the 40th anniversary of 1980. 
Uh, and so it would be April 1980, which I know was a significant time for you. But I'd like to start. Could you take us back and let us know what you were doing and where you were and what you're doing in late 1973? 73? Oh, we're starting in 73. Well, I thought we're, I thought we're in 1980. Okay, late Well, well we're going to go back seven years. Okay, late 73, I moved uh, my wife and I and our brand-new daughter moved from Moline, Illinois. Well, actually, we were living in Silvis. It was one of the many little cities in a cluster. Uh, to um, first Carbondale uh, and then Macanda, where I went to the University of uh, Southern Illinois, Carbondale. And um, we lived down there for two years. And uh, I, got, I, met a, I met a guy over the phone named Gary Gygax in 74 because I called him up late one night with a rules question. And we became friends. And in 75, after I graduated, I went to TSR. And, um, well, actually, uh, my first two paychecks were from Tactical Studies Rules, the old company. We didn't even have the, all the money transferred in the bank accounts and stuff yet. God knows, I wish I had kept those canceled checks. The ephemera market would just, just oh, yeah. would drown themselves in drool. <laughs> that came up, those came up on eBay. They would be so unusual and so odd. But, uh, yeah, um, and then uh, from 75 to 80, I did all those other things. Um, it's, it, it's unpleasant and sort of uncomfortable for me to go back and enumerate all the things I did because I feel like I'm bragging. And, and I was not raised that way. I've got an ego. Anybody <laughs> knows me will tell you that. But not in that way. Uh, I sat down one day and started ticking off all the games I'd been involved with and the companies I'd worked for and all that. And it was like, well, who am I trying to impress? It's just what I did. And that's kind of the way I felt. I went back to Gen Con in 2006. I've been out of the hobby since 83 or 84 when uh, Adventure Gaming went belly up. And um, I had no idea people had any idea who I was because I never wrote a game. I, there's no game design out there with my name on it. I developed games. I edited games. I published magazines. But those are all ephemeral fame, if you will. Nobody's celebrated in the, gamers, in the Game Designers Hall of Fame for being a great developer. Though I know a couple of guys who were great developers. They would take Drek and turn it into a saleable product. Um, so when I went up on the stage and after Frank Menser gave me that way overblown, <laughs> overly long introduction <laughs> and all these strangers I didn't know stood up and clapped, I was freaked out. I truly was freaked out. I had no idea. Now, yeah. I know what we did. When I lay my head on a pillow at night, I know that we, we few changed the world. We changed society. We did some pretty profound stuff. It really hit me when I was sitting in the second second Lord of the Rings movie, watching one of the great battles or whatever, and they go, man, if it hadn't been for us, this wouldn't, I wouldn't be watching this now. 
I don't think that's ego. I think it's just recognizing that we were the right place, the right time, the right thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we got to do it. I'm not of the opinion that nobody else could have done what we did. I am of the opinion that the upper Midwest at that point in time was a hotbed of design and gamers. If you look back at that period of time, there are a bunch of game clubs that all have their own newsletters and what have you. And uh, they were, they were fanning the embers, keeping the coals burning. And, um, we at TSR, I've, I've, I've often said that we can, Gary had a great design, came from something that Dave worked up. Gary developed it, expanded upon it. But if, it, if the right people hadn't been there at the right time, nothing would have happened beyond that game club that Dave played in up in uh, the Twin Cities. We were at a point in time where so many lines of influence, confluence, and randomness came across. Sexual revolution, Hobbit posters, Frodo lives in every head shop, uh, loosening of clothing, sexual mores, expanding the mind, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We were at the right place at the right time. And the credit I take for us at those early days at TSR is knowing we were there and working our fannies off to take advantage of it. Mm. We knew we had grabbed on to a rocket. Uh, and, but and, we worked our butts off to stay there and make the rocket fly higher. And our whole principle, and, and I say our, in this case, Gary's and mine, was, what the, was that the rising tide would lift all boats. We weren't there to promote our game at the expense of anybody else. Dragon Magazine was never a house organ. Dragon Magazine, even, even Strategic Review in the late few issues was, hey, check out this cool game that somebody else is doing. And that was my whole philosophy in Dragon Magazine. And look at all these great games out here. I want to tell you about a few of them. Not just our games, everybody's games. Just as I was glad to take everybody's money for advertisement. Right. And, and, and uh, you mentioned that you talked to Gary about chain mail. So when you were playing chain mail, it did, um, in my recollection is that chain mail at the back had a little fantasy part. Didn't, hadn't Gary put in a little, were you familiar with the fantasy part or yeah, were you just strictly I, I, I kind of poo-pooed it because I hadn't seen the game until, um, it, it was Tom Wom's set of the rules. I met Tom Wom at Carbondale. And um, it was his rules, and we were playing. Um, we were playing a game, and something had come up. Um, because if you if you've ever played minis, if you've ever played minis even moderately, no matter how wonderful the rules, stuff happens that you have to make an interpretation, and that was that was one of the underlying principles in the design of DD. If we didn't give you a rule, well, logic it out in your own mind. Do what you feel you think is right. Same way with minis. We, we would come up with a house rule, play the game. You know, we come up with a, a decision that we could all live with, play the game out, and then figure it out later when we had time. We're not going to sit down for an hour and figure out what we ought to do and interrupt the game. And I thought we'd come up. And I, to, be, to be honest, I don't even remember what it was. 
But I thought we'd done a pretty good job. And there was this thing in the back, on the very back page, about if you had rules, questions, send a, um, a, a sheet of paper and a self-addressed stamped, you know, send your question on a sheet of paper and enclose a self-addressed stamped envelope, the good old S-A-S-E. And um, I thought, nah. So I called up director assistance and I said, I'm looking for this name in Lake Geneva. And they found one. And um, I said, okay. And I waited until Saturday night when it got cheap because this is back when long distance cost you an arm and a leg. Yep, yep. And so I called him up. Hi, um, is this Gary Gygax? It is. Well, you don't know me, but I have a rules question. And I believe his response was, okay, just a minute. Let me get comfortable. And the conversation lasted almost an hour and a half. Wow. Between two strangers. And then there were following conversations. And he talked me into going to Gen Con in the summer of 74, and as I like to sum up, the rest is history. And can, can you tell us a little bit about, because I know you said you, you were blown away when you went to Gen Con, uh, you got to play in a couple games. What was that experience like, that first well, playing experience? Um, I, I started playing war games in uh, sixth grade in the 60s. Right, I, I, A good friend of ours, mine, bought a copy of D-Day, didn't have any idea exactly what it was he bought. And the two of us kind of sat down and figured it out. And um, so I only played for the next two years with Mike. And uh, then I didn't play anymore in high school. I didn't have any friends. I didn't have any friends that played games that I that I knew played games. Uh, because it was still a, a, a teeny, weeny, tiny hobby. And uh, the, Mike had bought the game in a stationery store. Hmm. Okay, that sold papers and pens and books and, you know, and, and dictionaries and stuff. And that's where he found D-Day. And so I didn't play again in high school. And then I, I found a, uh, a friend that was interested as I sat describing him, uh, describing, we were probably sitting on the beach stoned or something. I was telling about these weird games I used to play. Oh, that's pretty interesting. So we went to the local bookstore and got out, she got out her catalog and said, well, one of these, and checked off three or so and ended up getting 1914. <laughs> God, if wow. I'd only known at the time, I wouldn't have ticked that one off. Mm. Um, so um, I didn't have a, yeah, there were, there were periods there where I didn't, didn't game at all because I didn't have anybody to game with. And um, then I got to playing with Ed and um, then um, Ed, Ed went one, uh, you know, orders in the service. I ended up, ended up going to see, and Ed didn't. And so uh, I played games. Uh, I was in a shop. Um, what we called a shop in the Navy is we, we were the fire control technicians. And um, we had a bunch of avid game players in there, and we played cards all the time. Um, we played Acquire. That was a 3M bookshelf game. We played that so hard and so long that we we ended up buying and using the only three copies that the Philippines PX had. Hmm. Every time we went back in the Philippines, I was going to buy another copy of Acquire at the PX. <laughs> and I ended up buying all three of them and uh, ended up having the same clerk every time. Now, how odd is that? You're in port three times over a 10-month cruise. Yeah. And you go to the PX and you get the same guy every time. And he's going, uh. are you eating these things? <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, we were, we were literally wearing them out. 
that tiles were being so handled so often that the ink was being worn off the tops and you couldn't read the numbers. Wow. Um, the humidity was taking the paper goods and turning them into tissues. You know, a Monopoly deed card was like a really fluffy piece of uh, toilet paper after about six weeks at sea because of the humidity. Um, we went through decks of cards like uh, a like a poker table at Vegas. Um, we played, um, there was just a lot of competitive people in there. And I, th I talked to a couple of guys and said, yeah, that'd be cool if we had a war game. Well, we didn't have a war game. You, there was never a time on board a ship uh, during the war, during I was in during Nam, that you could do that. Now, I later found out that the guys on the submarines D&D'd all the time later on. But that was well after I got out. I got out in 71. So um, I've always been a gamer, but not always a war gamer. Uh, my mom raised us on candy land and shoots and ladders. And um, we had every home version of concentration and jeopardy. <laughs> my mom was an avid you know, player. And so she raised us to enjoy board games and family games. So um, I came by naturally. I got a gene there. Neither of my kids got it, but a couple of my grandkids got it. Mm. My great-grands are too young to find out. <laughs> They're too young to be tested. And, and do you think... Off topic somewhere. This happens to me on Saturday mornings when I've been up till two making videos. Oh, that's no, no, okay. Yeah. We're, we're, yeah, we're at, we ramble for five hours, so this is perfect for us, Tim. That's no problem. Yeah, well, I can talk for two hours. That's not, a, that's that's not an issue either. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got to get yeah. a ball. I was, I was asking about Gen, right? Because Gary, Gary convinces you to come to Gen Con, right? Which I believe would be Gen Con 7 uh, in August of 1974. Yeah. And, and that's the first time that you played, right, in, oh, in a yeah. role-playing game. game. The first game didn't last 40 minutes, the first D&D game. Yeah, I went up, and um, he convinced me to go, so I signed up for a couple of... No, in 74, I just went up and kind of wandered around. I, I wandered into, I, I got into a minis game for a little while because they were short of player. And then um, somebody was recruiting for a D&D &D game, and 40 minutes later, it was over. Um, I was sitting in the back, you know, being quiet because I had no idea what was going on. And before I knew it, we were all um, encased in some sort of gas-permeable lucite block taken up before what I found out later was... Uh, uh, Deus ex machina, and lasered into little <laughs> one-inch paperweights because we we did something wrong. I, to this day, I don't know why. But, but I said, "Well, that was pretty. That was pretty disappointing." What's Gary been going on and on and on about? You know. So um, it was going later, and I didn't have a hotel room, so I was determined to stay there as late as possible because then I had to drive back to uh, Moline, and. Um, I later, I'm pretty sure it was Rob Coons. He was just, you know, he was a youngster then. He was only 17, 18. I think it was Rob Coons was going around saying he needed players. So I said, okay, I'll give this thing one more. And um, two and a half, three hours later, my, my stupid dwarf had rescued a, a dying dwarf lord who had handed him his amulet of recognition as being now the ruler of this holding of his and you know i'm saying and i'm still grasping the rules and just which die do i roll you know and all of a sudden and i'm going 
this is a pretty good game. You know? mm. I walked in not knowing what's going on, and now I got men at arms, and I'm rich. And so, yeah, I went back to the booth, and I had enough money to get the box and a set of dice, or the box and Greyhawk, but not all three. So I got the three books, and I got the dice. Because, you know, you got to have the dice because then, you know, the dice were part of the allure. And so um, uh, the first several weeks of the campaign, we played strictly by the old, the three books without Greyhawk. And boy, was that an uphill slog. Uh, And that's what got me the job. I took the rules home. I spent six weeks, literally six weeks, all my free time reading through them, trying to do the first dungeon. And I called Gary up and I said, these rules are written for sh- and that that prompted two or three two or three hour long phone calls and that um, yes I could do a better job well why don't you think about coming to work when you graduate so my forthrightness and my outspokenness with Gary yeah. you know, what's wrong I said well, I'm a pretty smart guy and I've spent six weeks trying to figure out what the hell you're trying to tell me here I said it's not written very well. If I didn't have a slight understanding of minis, because I was still somewhat of a neophyte in miniatures, um, I said, if I didn't have a slight grasp of minis, I'd be totally floundering here. And so things, you know, conversations developed, and it was determined that uh, when I got my uh, degree, I'd go to work at, uh, I'd move to Lake Geneva and go to work for this new company he was forming. Because that was about the time that uh, Don had died, and um, you know things were changing. So um, I was uh, just like the company. I was in the right place at the right time. I had the hubris or the gall to call Gary Gygax up out of the blue and introduce myself. Um, at the end of that first ninety-minute phone conversation, we realized that we both read about half the books of what became later Appendix N. And that, you know, we had a very, very common grounding in our fantasy and our sci-fi. You know, Gary's own 10 was 10 years older than me, but we still had a, a love of a lot of the, uh, the, the same authors. And so we were coming from the same place, which made it so much easier for me to um, grasp what he was, you know, trying to do when I got there. And, um, you know, we, we finally cleaned up the three books with AD&D. We made a lot of clarifications and, and covered up a lot of oopsies. We forgot this. And, well, he, they did it in Greyhawk. I had nothing to do with Greyhawk. But then in Blackmore and, and Eldritch Wizardry and God's Demigods, we, we did a lot of tweaking uh, and put in stuff that we hadn't been able to put in for, because of uh, either size constraints or we hadn't thought of it yet. <laughs> so... Yeah, I'm. I'm not at all ashamed to say, yeah, some of that stuff's because we haven't thought about it yet. Um, and so, can, can, can you also talk a little bit uh, about the Qualishar campaign? Because you guys are basically you were play testing mm-hmm. uh, essentially uh, OD and D. Can you talk a little bit about? And, and my understanding too is those games often got quite large for the amount of players you had. So, if you well, could talk well, a little yeah. bit about that. When I went back to Carbondale and I had the only set, um, all right, I'll back up a little. When I when, for me, uh, I know where I got off track here a few minutes ago. For me, finding other gamers was a revolution. When I went to Carbondale and heard they had a gaming club, and I walked in that first day, and there's eight other gamers. 
That's the most gamers I had ever seen in one place. Mm. I later found out there was about 12 at the time that belonged or, you know, claimed. And then I went to that Gen Con in 74, and my God, there were several hundred gamers all in one place. Walking into the Hart Hall and putting my money on the table, I just had goosebumps running up and down my arms just looking at all these gamers. These are all, these are, these are your the brothers. And right. in that case, at that time, it was all guys. This was your brethren, your brotherhood. They like the same esoteric, weird stuff that you did. And that's a very profound uh, moment the first time you go to one of those. And that's why a lot of those small regional cons are still going 30 and 40 years later, because they're still out there for that, that fix of camaraderie, of brotherhood, of uh, tribe. We're all, we're all in this together. Um, Qualishar, yeah, sometimes I had as many. Well, I once had 17 guys want to play. And we played. Um, now keep in mind that I was, um, in, in the very earliest stages, we were playing without Greyhawk and I didn't know any better. And I've since found out sitting around having a few spotted cows at various, uh, Gary cons and late Geneva game conventions that a whole lot of us early adopters were doing the same thing. We thought you were supposed to roll for every room. Oh, wow. And so... Um, if I was a better musician, I would write a parody of Simon and Garfunkel, uh, It's All Happening at the Zoo, and I'd call it Let's Go Killing at the Zoo. Because <laughs> you open the door, llamas, kill, kill, kill. How many bees <laughs> next door? Oh, bears, kill, kill, kill. <laughs> Whatever the charge said was there, was there. Huge treasures, you know, because die rolls, all right? You know, they happen. <laughs> yeah. So we have these huge treasures. And... Um, one of our earliest players um, died um, at the at the at the tusks of a giant hog, and his idiot party members ill-advised tossing of a fireball, and so he became Hogbait. That was his name all through college. He later became a senior judge on the federal courts of appeals. <laughs> I wanted this someday to go into court, catch him in robes, go. Judge Hogbait. <laughs> um, Hobbit. Hobbit was our thief before there were thieves. It just happened because we played that way back then that the first couple of times he was able to, through lucky die rolls, figure out a trap, figure out a pick a lock, whatever, through die rolls. So I felt that while he was getting good at that, so I was going to start giving him bumps on his die rolls. Pretty soon he became the thief. He was known as Hobbit. He was six feet one and looked like a beanpole, but he was Hobbit. He was always Hobbit. I'm, I, it was many years later that somebody told me his, that I remembered his real name was Bruce. <laughs> he was Hobbit. Um, we tried stuff out. We tried new rules. And, oh, God, don't ask me which, because I, I don't know that I could tell you. But Gary would say, well, we've been doing this and such, and fudging it this way why don't you you know see what happens or i'd come up with an idea and i'd put it into my game and um next gary and i were talking maybe once every two or three weeks because remember this still costs money and we were both broke right um you know i was living with a wife and a child on my wife's nursing salary and gi bill and um gary was um 
you know, scraping by as, as, as is now well known in his early years, you know, doing the same, you know, making ends meet with a much larger family than mine. And uh, so we, we didn't, we couldn't afford, <laughs> couldn't afford to call much more often. And uh, so I try something and, um, he, you know, I, I liked the way it came out or he wouldn't like, I'm the one that got, uh, when, when AD&D finally came out, I finally got, um, magic missile to be something useful. The original rules for magic missile, if it hit, it was like having a whole mortar platoon come down on you. Or it missed all together. And that was the only spell you, your poor little first level hedge wizard had. Yeah. This is all or nothing. So I, it took me all that time to argue, but finally with AD&D, we got that put down to something useful for a hedge wizard. Because, you know, that's basically what all level ones and twos are. They're just, you know, dabblers. And um, I'm, I, I couldn't tell you which ones that I modified and which ones were set, you know, accepted or ended up in the rules. That's number one. It's so many years ago. Number two, um, rules writing is such an organic process. It's hard to remember when you added the salt or the pepper. You know they're in there now, but yeah, geez, was that stick step, step six or step nine? It doesn't matter. It, it got in, and, and the, the recipe turned out right. Um, I, you know, I I insisted that we have psionics. Ah. Uh-huh. Because in my Carbondale campaign, we got, I don't know, brain devourers or brain moles or, I don't know, something like that came out. And then I think the Mind Flare came out in one of the strategic reviews. And that thing, there was no there was no defense. There wasn't any. There were Before we did psionics in um, uh, Eldritch Wizardry, there, were, there was no defense against any of the, the mind monsters. Either it got you or it didn't. Hmm. And I thought, well, you know, that kind of goes against the whole ethos of D&D, risk for reward. And whether it's a, something bad, there's something to counter it. Um, every monster I ever, recre- ever created has an Achilles tendon, you know, an Achilles heel tendon. <laughs> not, not all of them have that. But they, they all have a weakness. The boule has the soft spot under its fin. Um, everything else um, I've ever written up, always there's always always a weak spot. There has to be. Um, everything has to be beatable or why bother? Right. Now, oh. there is, that there, the risk is stupid. If you've got a, a trick up your sleeve to go fight that wyvern and you want to do it, fine. But as a DM, you don't send those level ones and twos off to fight a nesting wyvern. You know, not unless you're tired of them. <laughs> you, you have somewhere to go, and you're like, "Oh, I got 20 minutes. Let's uh, let's end this thing." Exactly. I, I was once. I was. There's something going on on Facebook right now about the nastiest DM ever, and um, the meanest or the strictest. And I made the list. <laughs> Somebody made an absolutely erroneous. 
They said I'd kill the party in 20 minutes just so I could have a cigarette. Well, I don't smoke cigarettes. So that's not right. And no. Yeah, the rest was true, though. Well, I used to kill parties fast, not because I wanted to have somewhere else to go. It's because they earned it. They did, they did something they shouldn't have. They, they didn't look for the, the monster's weak spot. Yeah, you know, they charged him head on, or they took they they tackled the problem head on instead of studying. And Frank Menser finally convinced me that that wasn't fair because they were paying money, and it wasn't fair to them to knock them out forty five minutes into the thing because then they either had to lay the table or they had to sit there and shut up like a like a like a frog in a log, you know, be quiet. And so I started putting in universal antidotes. And every party had a, a, a fixed number of them, and with those, I could, you could basically bring people back from paralysis or stoning, or I even put, <laughs> I put a torso onto a, <laughs> onto a set of hips. Somebody got cut in half, and we glued them back together. And so, um, um, we were just I, talking I, about that. Yeah, I, we <laughs> we made it so that okay, you did something dumb, but you don't, you don't have to get up. Excuse me. You don't have to go up and leave the table right away. Um, and so um, after I got cancer, I realized that my 85% TPK rate, which is what I was averaging right about that time, was admirable from one point of view. But I really I really had a change of heart. And that's when I came up with this other, um, and so it's still ODMD, but I came up with this other format where it's almost impossible for, to, for a TPK, but I almost had one at TotalCon <laughs> two months ago. Oh, wow. And, yeah, I, and it was really unique. Um, I run a game that's, um, I saw, I've seen other people do something like this. Yeah, I make it up on the spot. Uh, I hand out pregens. And um, every person on an on a index card puts down two things, nouns, things. And I collect those cards anonymously, and I go through them. And the entire advent, I make the adventure up out of the stuff they give me. It's all in this big wheel format where you have to keep going forward through the test, next test, next test, next test. And, uh, of course, you, at each test, somebody gets a little coin that says, it's not my fault. And <laughs> at the end, they get to put that in the slot and they get off the wheel of blame. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. I've not had a single complaint about people feeling shortchanged when a party of seven played out an entire game in under three hours. And uh, the biggest complaint I get is that we laugh so much at my table that when we're in a room with other games, we disrupt mm -hmm. To which I say, tough. Gaming's supposed to be fun. Right. You know, now, no, we don't carry on a Mardi Gras at my table, but if it's funny, we laugh. Absolutely. Gaming's supposed to be fun. It's an entertainment, not a lifestyle, not a life choice. It's an entertainment. And it's too many people lose sight of that. And for, for that, I feel sorry for them. Mm. Uh, I, hope, I hope it doesn't sound condescending, but I do. It's supposed to be fun. Yeah, uh, you don't go into clinical depression when you're seventh level elf lord mage that can fly and shoot sparks out his ass dies. <laughs> you know, you're not supposed to have so much of your your own id invested in that right. that character on paper 
that you go into clinical depression. And I've seen it. I've seen I've seen marriages break up. I've seen uh, engaged couples throw the rings. Well, I didn't get to see this one, but I, I got told by two very reliable sources that a mar- uh, an engaged couple stood up at the table and threw the engagement rings at each other. Wow. That, I'm laughing about it now. It happened 20 years ago. I'm laughing about it now, but how tragic. But maybe that's the best. Maybe it's better to find out that it's somewhere at, at, at a base root you're incompatible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> better yep. now than when you got three kids that are going to be traumatized by you throwing your rings at each other later on. Exactly. Um, I don't, where were we? Oh, Aqualish Art. Yeah, we just tried out new stuff. We invented new items, uh, came up with new magic stuff. Um did you, I, I have down here my notes that Steve Alvin says that he was the first to play test the Ranger in your group. He might have been. Um, we, there again, we were, we were pulling in stuff out of strategic review whenever we could get it. Hey, a new character. Um, fine. Um, the thief class came in and Hobbit immediately switched over uh, to the, you know, to the, well, I guess Ranger came first. It's very possible he did. I know we had somebody playing the Ranger, but my God, how many years ago was that? 45 years ago. Forgive me if I don't remember uh, which players played which character. Dan, Dan doesn't care about that. He, he, so I got what, it. I got it covered. So what Dan, what Dan does, he scours all sources, and uh, once you try to recall... Uh, and actually, I'm surprised he hasn't asked you, where did Steve sit at the table? Was it five <laughs> to the left or right of you? So I apologize already, Tim. No, that. no. Actually, that, that question can't be answered because everybody sat at a every, – every week they sat at a different place because they started trying to get there early. They thought sitting closer to my end of the table would be an advantage. Oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. So, you know, the, the, the student center opened at like 10 or whatever, but – I never showed up before 11. And so I'd walk in and they were sitting there like at a board meeting waiting for me, the CEO, to show up. And so, no, I couldn't even have told you that. Um, I know Weirbear used to sit down on, on the far end on the right side, and I couldn't tell you his name offhand. He got uh, bitten by a, um, a lycanthrope, a bear, and it was a bear, and he actually lived through it, and he successfully mastered it. Because there were rules for you know overcoming and, and mastering lycanthropy, and um, boy, when he turned into a bear, he was bad news. Um, and people don't embrace that kind of stuff today. Uh, I mean, I think it'd be cooler in hell to be a uh, you know turn into a grizzly bear. Anybody ever watch True Blood? Mm-hmm. Come on, <laughs> there's some neat yeah. abilities there. I'd love to be uh, the uh, what was his name? The guy that owned the bar. He could turn into an owl and a dog, and you know, I'd love to have that ability. What what a great skill that would be in D and D. All right. So, uh, and I know Crazy Neil. Crazy Neil always sat at the far end of the table, but that did was. You, did you call that? Did you call him that to his face? Oh yeah. Oh okay. Oh yeah, yeah. Because he he was there to have fun, a little more fun than we were ready to embrace. Because he would do crazy in the middle of the game. All right, I, yeah, I, I more sets of armor. 
polymorphing himself. See, Neil got one of the rings that I never gave out again ever because the damn table said, yeah, when I was doing that dungeon, okay, there's a room of polymorphing in here and it's only got a giant salamander guarding it. Mm. You know, those things could happen with the old treasure and monster rules and tables. And so he got that thing and he kept polymorphing himself into a golden dragon. And he never remembered to take off his armor. He ruined more sets of armor. And he ended up being uh, Dragon Spam. He ran into a 10-foot by 10-foot room and didn't bother to ask how big it was. And he said, I'm going to run in here, close the door, and polymorph. Okay. Okay. And he never came out. And when they finally opened the door, there was Dragon Spam just waiting to be carved in the doorway because he was dead. <laughs> that was the end of Crazy Neil. He was an astronomy student. That ought to tell you something right there. I really think he was also into astrology and perhaps other stuff. But mm. uh, he was one of those guys. He actually had a pocket protector. Wow. That's <laughs> awesome. He was, our, he was our official science nerd. <laughs> James, do we have some, it looks like we, may, do we have some questions on the chat. Yes, um, got a lot to do today, right? <laughs> that's right. No, well, they're 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 talking amongst themselves. But yeah, if you have okay. any questions, please give it up to Tim. So, but Dan, I know you've got some oh, other things too. Yeah. I got lots of questions. All right, here first, we're going to do some trivia. Okay, oh, I want oh. <laughs> you know, here, here it goes. I want you you tell me who wrote the following. I was minding my own business, attending Southern Illinois University at Carbondale, Illinois, majoring in journalism. One day, I stopped in at one of my regular haunts, the downstairs arcade pinball arcade. There behind the counter was a bearded, slightly balding man rolling strangely shaped dice and making notations on graph paper. Being the curious being that I am, I asked what he was doing. That was it. I had to have a set of D&D rule books right away. I have no, no idea. The downstairs arcade was owned by my friend Phil Viator. I could never get him to play a game. Um, I kind of managed the arcade for him. And um, one year, we ran the, one of the very first pinball tournaments in the Midwest. And the prize was 2,000 dimes. Oh, wow. $100. And believe me, we, oh man, we had 80, we had 80 or 90 people um, from all over the Midwest. We had people from Arkansas and Missouri and Minnesota, Pennsylvania. I mean, two hundred dollars was a draw well, back then, and uh, that that was Tom, Tommy was a big deal, you know, and, and everything. That, um, but yeah, Dave, I'm, still, Dave I'm looking. I'm looking at my pinball machine sitting over there in the corner, right there. I still mm. have a pinball. Machine. You still have it. That 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 was Jake. Jake Chaket. Oh, that was Jake. That, that was, was Jake. Okay. Yeah, Jake and I became good friends, uh, real good friends. And then um, I left, and then he left a little later, and then went to Games Magazine, and then left there, and have no idea where, what happened to him. And you, so I'd like to ask you about, you know, when you showed up at TSR, we know you're the first employee, which means you got to work out of, out of Gary's basement. Well, now, wait a minute. Got to get, <laughs> that's the wrong word. <laughs> had to work. <laughs> had, see, now in retrospect, it's like you didn't realize at the time that it would be something you know people would be you know very impressed I with. Wow, you're in the basement. <laughs> Forty years later, you're, you're in the basement again. 
Oh God, don't don't do that to me. <laughs> it's come full circle. <laughs> well, <laughs> I get hired. We buy a house in Delavan. I show up for work the first day. Whatever I don't remember what the number is now. Um it's a house. I go knock on the door. Hey, Tim, yeah, come on in. And uh, come on downstairs. <laughs> there are, you was, getting, are you getting nervous? How well did you really know Gary Gygax at this I point? Pretty well, we had lots of phone conversations. And when okay. you soliloquies like that, which, you know, phone, phone conversations like that are trading soliloquies. And um, <clears throat> I knew him pretty well. I just didn't know that his office was two four-by-eight sheets of plywood in his basement on sawhorses with one 100-watt light bulb dangling from the ceiling with no shade on it. Mm. That was the, that was TSR. That had been uh, Tactical Studies rules. Uh, Gary's basement and um, Don Keogh's basement. Well, of course, Don was dead and everything had to be moved out. So um, it was understood from the beginning because of my wife working second shift at the county hospital that I would work mornings. We only had the one car, you see. I would work mornings at the house, the office, the, the shop, whatever we called it. And then um, I would uh, also work from home half the day, basically. Well, it was usually, you know, I needed more than four hours to work. I did it. So basically, I had an office in our back bedroom. I had my desk back there, my typewriter. And so we would talk about what I was going to do. I'd go home and type it all up, bring it back the next day. We'd talk, you know. And so that's how I I telecommuted before it was a thing, Hmm. simply because we only had the one car and we had a baby. So I got home, gave the, you know, Kiss to the wife, pat on the butt, and off she went to work, and I took over babysitting duties. Uh, well, I, that's the same thing we had done when I, the last, you know, the last two years in Carbondale. We both worked different shifts, which is probably why we got along so well back then. And now we're still married fifty years later. Oh, uh, um, great. Yeah, we we have a big thing planned in in Alabama in August for the whole family, but. We don't know if we're going to be able to do it or not now. Let's see what's going on in August. um, Anyway, I forgot where I got. I I, I get. um, Oh, uh, having having to work and getting to work. Yeah. Now they make they make uh, pilgrimages to the house. All right. And they make and the the the, some nonprofit has bought 723 Williams. Or no, is that Gary's house? Somebody's bought the one, the gray building that we moved to. And they've turned it into a D&D museum. And I'm donating some stuff to them. I was going to take it up, but uh, this Gary Khan, uh, you know, as we all know, didn't happen. We turned virtual. I ran a bunch of virtual games. That worked out pretty well. Oh, good. Oh, good. Okay. Well, I'm going to games online with uh, Zoom. Uh, I'm going to make money at it or I won't do it. <laughs> <laughs> And, and could you so when you show, can you tell us about your first assignment? I'm, and I'm going to quote you here because I got my documents. So in the four, oh, in the four yeah, you got close to stuff. I don't remember being asked the question. Okay, sure. it, 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 so this is what you wrote in the foreword to God's Demigods and Heroes. You say my my first assignment, fresh out of college, was Blackmore. 
I came to regard it with a mixture of love and loathing that has gradually seen the love win out. The loathing grew out of the educational trip that it was for me. They don't teach you in college what to do when the press breaks down or your manuscript gets mysteriously misplaced. You just have to wing it. So, and I, and I know you've also talked about the condition that the Blackmore notes were in when you got them. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what that was like to, to work on Blackmore right off the bat. Well, <clears throat> all right. Now, this is going to sound like it's all on Dave, and it's not. Some of it's on Dave, but it's not all on Dave. I was handed a peach basket. Now, for those of you who aren't old enough, a peach basket was about this wide. I have to back up here. About this tall. And it was uh, half a peck of peaches, I think, is what went in them back when peaches were sold that way. And it was made of, uh, you know, thin slats of wood. Literally, I was handed a peach basket full of sheets of paper, scraps of paper, pieces of paper, clumps of paper, papers stapled together, <laughs> notes and scraps, paper clipped together and said, hi, here's your first assignment. This is the next supplement. And I looked into the basket and I said, oh, okay. She says, uh, first thing you need to do is uh, sort all that out. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, I kind of figured that. And so... Um, so you're, I, so you're I, in a basement with a peach basket full of random paper. Are you, are, had you sold your house at this no, point? No, no. I, took, I looked at it as a challenge. I mean, you know, I was uh, 26 years old. Um, thought I was invulnerable, full of my, full of myself. Um, I'm a new father. I got a great wife. I'm, I'm living in a nice house. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Bring it on. Um, I felt I could do it. I wouldn't, I don't believe I was being cocky. I just felt that I was ready to do this. This is what I had come for. I specialized my major the last year at Carbondale to do this job. All right. I got a degree in personal and uh, public and personal communications through the speech department. Right? I studied journalism. I studied history. I I made up my own curriculum. I had to present it to a board of uh, professors and get it approved. And I did it from seventy the summer of seventy four until I graduated with the express idea of going to work for Gary. So I took photography classes. I took, you know, I took a lot of different stuff to have a general overall background in what I thought I was going to need. And I was right. So I felt I was capable of doing it. It was just like, whoa, you couldn't let me pinch get in the fourth inning. You got to call me in the ninth inning with the bases loaded. Holy cow. Thanks for the confidence. So I took it home and I sorted it over the weekend. Gary had a habit of dropping crap on you on Friday. <laughs> Clever devil. <laughs> but he worked weekends too when he could, even with a family full of kids, you know, family of kids. But um, he dropped it on me. And so I went home and I sorted it. And I went back on Monday. And he and Brian were sitting there, you know, all smug. <laughs> yeah, well, standing. We didn't have chairs in the basement. Well, what did you think? I said, I think he gave me a basket full of crap. I said, I spent all day Saturday and Sunday trying to sort out what I got. I got ideas. I got stuff I don't know what it goes with. I got stuff that's worked out. He goes, yeah, it's kind of like that. And I said, well, who says all this stuff? Well, we don't know anymore. I've come 
later to learn that Steve Marsh, <laughs> a bunch of his stuff was in there. Steve Marsh um, uh, did a, a number of things that I didn't know because in that basket there was no attribution. None of those pieces were signed. Dave did this, Steve did this, Gary did that, Brian did. No. And then I had to say, okay, I thought the Sahagan was a great inclusion to a temple that worships aquatic beings. Dave had a hissy. They weren't his Sahagan. How dare I? It was supposed to be his supplement. I tried to explain to him, well, I thought your supplement would sell more copies <laughs> if it was more stuff in it, you know. And uh, we never did see eye to eye on that. But then I <laughs> seldom ever saw anything eye to eye with Dave. Um, very few people did. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the monk and the assassin? I hate them both. That's why I asked. Um, <laughs> my, my job as the publisher of periodicals was not to let my personal taste override everything. Mm. I knew that people were hungry for new directions. We didn't call them this. We weren't so wedded to the term character classes back then. They were, they were wedded to the idea of doing more things and being able to specialize in things. Um, the Ranger was <laughs> big, big surprise. Strider, <laughs> you know, Strider, and um, the monk. Brian was fascinated with Kung Fu, the TV series, and he kept agitating for we ought to have you know either a whole new skill for fighting man. You know, oh no, oh Jesus, no. And so we ended up with the monk. I don't like I don't like paladins. I don't like monks. I despise the idea of assassins because I believe that assassins goes against the whole primal ethos of a D&D &D as it was intended. Good overcoming evil. An idealistic, altruistic viewpoint, I'll grant you. But that's what it was. That's why Gary so heavily proscripted magic users so that all campaigns were dominated by wizards. He wanted human heroes. That was Gary's ethos. Hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that, that infused the game. I felt that assassins, I don't like thieves that steal from their own party. I won't tolerate that in my games. Hmm. Thieves don't steal from their own party. That creates dissent. In my campaign in Carbondale, Hobbit never once took anything. He never even palmed anything when he got the box open. It never crossed his mind to be anything but a productive member of the party. Call us altruistic, call us naive. That's the way we played in the beginning. That's That was it. You didn't steal from your buddies. And you didn't use that lame ass excuse, I'm just playing in character. No. 
Dissent in the party weakens the party. Weaker parties die faster. And it's kind of like being in a squad in the military. You've got to trust the guy in the hole next to you. If you can't, you won't survive. You've got to trust your party members to accomplish the task before you and not divert your attention to whether Bob over here is trying to pick your pocket. So, but obviously there are people Personal who are, ethic. Personal right. ethic. I agree. But there, are, I admit. but there are obviously people who are, I'll call it pro-assassin, because there's all these rules in the DMG about spying and, and fees for assassinating people. So, you know. And I think they, I think they, when they included that crap, I think they broke the ethic of the game. If you want to play it, fine. I've always said, and I still say, if you're having fun, great. If you want to play a bunch of evil characters and go around slaughtering nuns, don't ask me to play in your game, but I'm not going to condemn you. I'm just going to keep my eye on you. <laughs> okay? Uh, it's an extreme example. No, but you're right. Right. And, and, and the idea, I think also the character... Back to your point of as an extension of this psychological delve that you're doing versus it's a game, you're playing something, and if it dies, so what? You're gonna, you know, you may have grown fond of it and the story may have ended, but it's not life altering because you're not fleshing out some dark thing that you're trying to deal with or some good thing you're trying to deal with. It's 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 an extension of a game, we're getting together. And again, that the the group ethos is is prevalent, and I think other iterations kind of tended towards that. And you also think, yeah attract people who may not be as interested in that group ethic. Well, you might, but remember, we started as a game club that was already playing board games together and minis together, so we already had a shared camaraderie because we were the weirdos that met at the student center and played with lead soldiers. Right, right. So we already had an us against them mentality. Not an antagonism, not an antagonistic, but it was always, yeah, we, we know that people think we're weird. We don't care. Um, when I got to Carbondale, like I said, there was maybe 12 people. I said, why the hell hasn't anybody ever advertised or, or exhibited at the activities fair? Because this is, we were on quarters and they had one every quarter. So I said, well, hell, I will change that. So I got us a table. We got a piece of felt. I borrowed a bunch of Tom Wom's minis, and we set up a mock battle. You know, it wasn't anything. It was just soldiers on a table. And we doubled our size set. We went from 12 to 21. Mm. And those were the guys that were showing up 17 at a time to play D&D. Okay. Um, there's always been a... You say a psychological delve. I think one of the beauties of role playing that the DM, uh, one of the privileges that the DM has is watching people bloom, not characters, people. When I'm running games at cons, very often younger players will get talked over. But when they're sitting, they're all facing a problem because remember, the games I run now are primarily about problem solving. They may involve hacking and slashing, but problem solving. I'll often hear a younger person get talked over. And they got a good idea. 
And, I, and so I will turn to them and go, what was that? And now everybody in the group turns and they listen. Now it might embarrass the person that said it the first time, but when it's a good idea and they succeed, I've watched people in the course of three hours become productive member of the party. Now I encourage that. It's something I actively do. When I'm running games and cons, I will point at people that I hear making a good comment. Especially lady gamers tend to get talked over. Especially young female gamers tend to get talked over. I don't believe it's anything sexist. I believe that the difference in personalities, guys talk over each other. Ladies don't. All right, females don't, as a rule, talk over each other. So I will, what was that you said? And I will watch people blossom. I have watched people blossom in a long-term campaign. I have had anecdotal evidence from many, many DMs talk about how so-and-so. I watched it happen in Carbondale. Mm. I watched Hobbit go from a quiet, skinny guy that sat in the corner to becoming the thief of the party and, you know, li being listened to and stuff. So that psychological delve can be really good sometimes because you can encourage personalities to, I won't say become assertive, but become heard. And when you're working with kids especially, which I've done, I've, I've worked with, uh, I've done things at the library uh, in years past. Um, you can encourage um, children, younger youngsters. Um, when you're 71, everybody's a child. <laughs> well, you can encourage youngsters to um, realize that their opinions have value or worth. And that's so, that would be great. We need to go to the library, and Tim can run a game for us, and and he'll be like, <laughs> "Shut up, you two! We're trying to let the kids play." And we'll be like, "No, wait, wait, what about this, Tim?" That'd be it'd be embarrassing. Well, I, one, one time we had International Game Day at the library. And I said something about being involved in it. And I had six guys drive up from Southern Kentucky just to play d, &D. <laughs> I, I was touched, but I was like freaked out too. <laughs> um, and, and Tim, I, it's, it's always crazy when my games fill up and people, can I get in, can I get in? I, I'm, okay, sure, you know, whatever. I'm always touched when that happens. I don't always understand it. And I, I definitely want to make sure we get to talk about your time as editor of the Dragon magazine, because for so many of us, uh, that was, uh, you know, such, it was something we looked so forward to, and, and we loved the magazine. Uh, we're going through each uh, uh, issue now on Grog Talk. Each week we go through one. Fortunately, we, we started at 1980, so we only get really one in which, which you were editor-in-chief. But I'd like to ask you about the very first one, because right off the bat, your first edition, right, the Boulet, yeah. Is, is in is in the very first issue, and um, your response, right? You, you created the boulet, correct? Yes. Well, the only reason it was in the first issue and not the second was because back in those old hoary days, um, when we did, when somebody wanted to do an ad, they had to send me an a negative or a separation, a, a physical thing. They had to send by a snail mail, then I had to give this physical thing to my printer because we used offset printing back then, which is, you know, very, it, it sounds really strange to anybody under 40, but that's the way we did it back then. And it got crumpled. The negative was creased. 
and some of the black came off. So there was a white stripe. So it was not usable. So I was screwed. Mm -hmm. The magazine was at the printers. Um, the one that was in number two was originally going to be the first one. The Remore House, I think it was. That was going to be our first one. I wanted to start off with something, you know, really bizarre. I had this neat artwork for it. Perfect. And so I went to Gary because <laughs> he had the sack, the, the, the sack that had the old um, plastic monsters. <clears throat> and I said to Gary, I said, what haven't we used yet? Why? So I explained my situation. Oh, so he dumped him out and um, I saw the, the boule, which at the time was the bullet. Once or twice, it had appeared in Greyhawk simply as an irritant and had run down the hallway and knocked a bunch of the party down and distracted them and ran off. So it had no essence. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, this is it. And I took it home and I've told the story about how I was writing it up and we were, and the, the United States culture was kind of anti-French at the time because de Gaulle was being a prick and he wouldn't, wouldn't let NATO fly over France. And that had, that had been, well, and Tebby was a problem because of that. And there were, there were things going on. And so we were kind of anti-French. There was even a website, might still be out there, that was France, F France. I used to love it. I'd go because it was all anti-French propaganda and memes and stuff. So to mock the French, I would make the bullet, the boulet. <laughs> and it would be the fiercest thing on the plains, unlike the Gaul. So... Um, I took it home. I was writing up, you know, how it, it tunneled. There it, is. there it is on the cover there. Yeah, that's still on the cover. Yes, I know. What I, an I, honor. You got, you got the cover. You got the first page I of the monster know, manual. I didn't know until three years ago that the the guy sitting on the top of the D6 smoking the pipe was supposed to be me. Oh, I yeah. Well, like three years ago. But the wizard on the D6 was uh, supposed to be a tribute, uh, you know, a thing to me. Uh, I was freaked out. I didn't know that all these years. Anyway, um, so literally out in the other room, Saturday Night Live is on. It's a repeat. That's why I wasn't watching it. Andy Graham. <laughs> I in charge. Whoa! The movie became the common name because we always had common names. Uh, we, we like to come up with common names for monsters back then. And so, okay, commonly known as the land shark, and the rest is history. And, and, and smart moments often and, come strange ways, strange places. Sometimes you're stone cold sober. Sometimes you're not. And, and if you can also, and James, let me know too if we have any questions yep. on the chat. There are a couple about uh, dragons, so this is a good time when, when you're ready. Okay, after you get. Go ahead. Well, so okay. uh, one of our folks, Vic, said, was there any issue of Dragon Magazine that you would want to do over again? That, that yeah, I think it was uh, three. The uh, Empire of the Petal Throne. That was a wasted issue. Game never sold worse. 
cover was not very good. It was the best I could find at the time because we wanted something that was thematic to the Empire of the Petal Throne. I was never a fan of the Empire of the Petal Throne uh, for a number of reasons. Who wants to learn all those damn languages just so you can pronounce the monster names? That was my first thing. Mm -hmm. um, I did not like M.A.R. Barker because I drove all the way, I rode all the way up there with Gary and Brian and was excluded from the play test. Hmm. I was told I could go sit somewhere else. Well, my, my, my mental response was, here's a big one for you, professor. Um, <laughs> so that, you know, that turned me off against him. He was an egotistical son of a bitch. Um, who had his coterie in the Twin Cities and expected that his, now his coterie would become global. Um, that, episode, that whole issue was wasted because it was all that Empire Petal Throne crap. Um, I would never print another yellow cover. I did that twice. It took me twice to learn yellow covers are the kiss of death. <laughs> I could not explain why this is. The only two times I ever got returns were yellow covers. Hmm. Never. I guess yellow just does not inspire you to reach up and pull that off the shelf. The only two issues I ever got returns on, yellow covers. So I would not do that again. <laughs> and, and, you know, because people bring up, it's almost like, I don't know, some, some book that everyone says you have to read, but no one's read it. You know, The Empire of Pelothrone. Every few years, you know, it's so expensive to get the original series, uh, the original box. You know, people, there's a lot of the old timers, I'll use it that way, they, they're enamored with it. I mean, I've, I've looked I, at I, it. I'm, I'm one of the oldest of the old timers. Yeah. All right. Now, Lenny Lakofka is older than I am. Unfortunately, Brian just died last week. He yeah. wasn't older than me anyway. I'm now the last surviving member of the original crew at TSR. I'm 71. I turned 71 in January. Um, Luzaki's still alive. I'm really hard-pressed to think Steve Jackson. Um, yeah, Flying Buffalo. Ken Sinatra. Ken? Hmm? Ken Sinatra? Ken? Yeah. No, no. Oh, God, no. Not him. Oh, I was going to say. Uh, the guy that... Um, oh, I'm, I'm, I got a brain fart. Well, no. well you know... Jim Ward... It's not or anything but an author. Oh, I see. Flying Buffalo. Um, I'm trying to think of the guy that ran, that kept it alive all those years. Somebody Google it on the chat. I have a brain fart. Can't do it. And and Jim Ward, of course, wasn't working for TSR, right? You had a lot of you had a lot of very good freelancers. Jim Ward was teaching um, uh, middle school English. Uh, uh, right, we, right. Well, I had an enormous advantage in Dragon Magazine. I was the only market. General didn't buy anything except articles about Avalon Hill Games, and usually only from the, within their own circle of, of playtesters and developers. S and T didn't publish anything except about uh, SPI games. Nobody bought fantasy art. Nobody bought fantasy. And when I say bought, 
people would have done it for free mm -hmm. just to be published. I know that. I just to see your name in print. I, I understand that urge. Not everybody deserved to see their name in print, <laughs> but, but um, I had the advantage of getting tons of stuff. What we what the term back then was over the transom, that was unsolicited manuscripts and art, uh, refers to an old style of doors, and um, they like people slipped it in at night. I had a slush pile of art that was uh, w was amazing. Um, I had a slush pile of articles. Uh, I would get stuff in that needed my reading through it and making seven or eight marks with a red pencil editing. That's it. Good. Go. Uh, to stuff in the third pile that would would require rewrite, but was worth the effort. Mm. The art, I would just, if I had an article about such and such, I'd just go through my slush pile and see something. Yeah, this kind of fits. So I had all that at my People were, and once I started publishing, it, it increased. Look at all the great artists I was fortunate enough to, quote, discover. I was the only market at the time. So I liked their stuff well enough to use it. And then TSR would hire them. <laughs> I couldn't use them anymore. But Errol Otis and Jeff D and Tom Wom, um, Tramp. Um, there Darlene. Were, Darlene, well, no, Darlene, Darlene, I used her and pissed it out of a couple of people at TSR and thumbed my nose at them because I was periodicals and I could do as I pleased. I pissed off the art department. No, I pissed off Dave Sutherland. Sutherland had been extremely rude to her when she asked. She, at the time, was Mike Carr's lady friend. Mike came to work with us. She moved down here with him. Thought, oh, this would be great. Mike thought it would be great, an outlet for her art. Sutherland was a horrible misogynist. I said this before he died. Um, and he was very dismissive. And I thought her stuff was neat. So I started, uh, I started commissioning her to do stuff for me. And pissed off Sutherland, who went and complained to Brian. And Brian said, tough shit. That's periodicals business. So that that was yeah, that was an early rift. I dared to hire somebody. Um, yeah, she was one. Um, Tramp came to me um, at the booth when we were at Parkside. Mm. Hey, I got this neat game idea. You know, here's Tramp with his wild orange hair and his flat hat, and I was probably pretty much looking the same. We were both kind of crazy hippie lookers, looking, you know, crazy looking hippies. Um, and um, he showed me Titan scratched out in the dirt underneath a tree after the dealer's thing closed one evening and then mentioned, oh yeah, I, I draw. Because he, he, had, he had some sketches of his, what his pieces were going to look like. And I was struck by the style. And so... All of a sudden, I got wormy, and he's doing stuff for me. Tom Wom, um, I knew. Well, to be fair, Gary knew briefly Tom Wom back in the early, mid-60s when Tom was briefly working for Don Lowry. Because Don Lowry was one of the early um, game guys. He did rules. He did he, he wholesaled games. 
So Gary knew Tom back then. They just crossed. And then Tom sent me a three-page full-color cartoon after I'd gone to TSR applying for a job and why we ought to hire him and all that. And I took it in to Gary. Gary read it and said, hire him. Um, so, you know, I've been very fortunate in that I've been able to bring talented people to the public's eye. If I liked it, I published it. I was interviewed for that um, Art of the Dragon book. Mm-hmm. Oh, they came and sat out on my porch for four or five hours when I was recuperating from the cancer. And um, at one point, he turned it off and he says, you're just telling me that you have no formal art training. I go, no. If I liked it, I published it. And the guy just held his head in his hands. And I said, you know, what's your problem? He says, I just, I'm having trouble processing all this. And oddly enough, I was hardly in the movie at all. Mm. Because I wasn't an artist. I didn't have an art degree. I didn't have an art background. I published what I liked. So I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Guys made the movie. Here's one for you, too. Did you? I, 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 the only, the only point of hubris that I will assume is that I always felt I had a, a good knack for knowing what a lot of people would like. I always felt I had kind of an everyman taste. And so if I liked it, I was kind of confident that a lot of other people would like it too. And I was usually right. Do you have a favorite cover from uh, the issues that you oversaw as editor? Well, I have a favorite front and a back and another back. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite one we did was the Trampier number 17. It was a front and a back combined cover of Celtic, very Celtic artwork. Um, That was... An, an absolute mind blower. Tramp had come to me and said, hey, I, I want to do a cover for you. What you got coming up? And even after TSR told Tramp that he shouldn't be doing stuff for me, Tramp told him to go piss up a rope. He would do art for me whenever he chose to on his own time and continued until I left. But anyway, I said, well, I'm doing this thing. And it was... Um, it was a reprint of an Elspreg Camp story, if I recall. It was it was a it was a reprint of a, of a fantasy story that had been out of print for a long, long time, thirty or forty years. And he walked in one day with this enormous drawing that was a front and a back. I'd never done a double cover before. Had no idea how to approach it. Some of the most intricate, amazing artwork Tramp had done. If you go look at that cover, look at the horses' fetlocks. Look at the detail in their fur, in their hair, on their fetlocks. It's astonishing. As it happens, I'm now driving that painting. I I was convinced years ago to sell that painting to someone on another continent for a ridiculous sum of money with which I bought my uh, my uh, element. That was probably my favorite. Um, and it was a ridiculous sum of money that got me to part with it. And my second favorite would be the back cover of the Christmas issue. I think it was 14, where we were all in the sleigh wishing everybody happy holidays. And I have that original on my wall. Tramp did that one also. And uh, I have that original on my wall, and 
it, the original does not have, of course, all that printing and crap. That was an overlay. And that is the original crew back in, from those days. That's kind of a snapshot caricature of all the original guys. Tom's there, Dave's there, Gary, Brian, Joe Orlowski, uh, Rob Koontz. And I'm, of course, driving the sleigh being pulled by eight green dragons. Um, that's just, that's a time capsule snap caricature, call it what you will. And um, someday when I'm gone, my wife will sell that for a really stupid <laughs> lot of money. And uh, that'll be cool. But, and also, I wanted to, to go back just a little bit in time uh, to the, the week or so that you sort of midwifed AD&D. Because I, I know that you still, your game of choice is OD&D. And I also want to ask you about that as to whether well, or not you My game of choice is Frozen in Amber right between um, Forget Swords and Spells. That's for minis. Uh, right before that, and the publication of AD&D. The operating ethos of OD&D was we are the Borg. See an idea? Take it. See a setting? Use it. Spin it into a new web. It's what I do with the Wheel of Blame. You give me things, and it's up to me to weave a story out of them. It's like story dice. Mm -hmm. All right, so we we wove tapestries. That's what we did. We wove tapestries, and we tried to show other people how to do it. And at that point in time, Gary said, all right, it's time. Now, there were a lot of reasons we did AT&T. One of the primary reasons was monetary. We made stupid amounts of money on the, on the tournaments that we ran at conventions. Stupid amounts. Or what it was back then. Okay, different, different economy. Sure. But stupid amounts of our operating capital and our profits came. We would have 400 people sign up for our tournaments. Well, there were only 1,100 people at the, that particular con, right? We started drawing, we started making uh, regional cons bigger because of the draw we had. We, we had a DM shortage. Okay, we can't train DMs to think like we do. Let's straighten out the rules. So, Gary told me on a, on a Thursday or Friday, What's your next week look like? And, um, or no, this that was a Tuesday. I said, well, I put a magazine to bed on Thursday, meaning it goes off to the printer for the, in the final shot, which means I had four, five, six days before they would come back, depending upon where the weekend fell. He said, clear your next week. Okay, I did. So I cleared my next week. Didn't tell me why. Came in. He says, all right. Well, over the weekend... He'd gone around, this, we're still in the old gray house across from the Clark Station next to the Pizza Hut. He'd gone around and taken every bulletin board, every cork board in the whole building down. You may have to bleep that. Sorry, I seldom pass on, uh, on these things. I seldom use that word. Um, he'd taken down every bulletin board in the place, gotten, 
And screws. He covered every available square foot of his office because he had two windows in his office. He had the best office in the house because he had two windows. Uh, he had covered every square foot and he had two standing up on the walls. And I looked at it. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess I won't ask what we're going to do. He says, we're going to redo the game. Oh, so um, I believe, I don't, it might be that Kevin's wife was hanging around then. Whoever was on phone duty was given orders that no calls were to be forwarded to either of us unless it was our wives. And we closed the door. There was a little pile. I say a little pile. There were seven or eight brown box sets there, which we proceeded to cut up and mark up and trash generally as we pulled them on the different bulletin boards. Okay, this is for basic and this is for advanced. Okay, in basic, how are we going to modify this? And we put up the notes on how it's going to be modified for basic. And we basically, over the course of... Well, it was all that week, and maybe I know most of Monday, possibly part of Tuesday of the following week, that's what we did. We took breaks for lunch. He'd walk home. I'd go across the street to Pizza Hut or go to the A&W or, you know, whatever, and we'd have lunch and we'd come back, and that's how AD&D was born. Hmm. And um, sometime later, he showed up. We used to use these big gray cardboard boxes for manuscripts. And a couple of weeks later, he showed up with the first manuscript and uh, started, you know, churning them out. And because um, this was all typewriters back then, we had no, we had no digital files. We had to rewrite it every time. Um, and Gary was a machine when it came to punching out uh, typewritten pages. He was an absolute machine. Um, and, um, it was uh, decided that Mike Carr would be the editor, and so he gave it to Mike to edit. And then on a Friday, and it was years and years later that I told Mike about this. On a Friday, he Mike Mike was supposed to have it back in on a you know such such Friday. Mike was a Mike was a Mike was a work work workhorse. I mean, God, I still am friends with him. Uh, he had it finished by Wednesday before the deadline. You know. And Gary dropped it, literally dropped the box on my desk on Friday and said, uh, check this out and see how he did. I was appalled. I was being asked to check the work of my coworker. Mm. I was really embarrassed. But I did it. I brought it back on Monday. I said, he did a great job. And so Mike became the editor for the series. And, and, and would that have been the monster? So was this even before the monster, man? No, 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 no. Oh, it was the first book we put out. Which of the three first? The Monster, Monster uh, DMG or the Monster? No, Monster Manny was first. Um, well, who's listed as the editor? Well, the foreword is by Mike, Mike Carr, September 27, 1977. It lists him. He does the foreword. Usually the foreword is going to be done by the editor, right? Yes, yeah, before we changed the way we credited back then. If he wrote the foreword, he edited it. Because yeah. I didn't put my own name editing in until the second one I did. I didn't take an editor credit on Blackmore. I wrote the foreword. 
It was on the second book that I put edited by Tim Cask. And can I, so the cutting up of the, of OD&D to figure out what's going to go AD&D, what's going to go basic, um, AD&D seems so much more rule heavy to me. I I don't really understand the process that you would have gone, you know, because it seems to me like basically basic was sort of in the whole, I mean, assume you're talking about the Holmes edition, which it was being a comp, seems like basically a rewrite of OD&D. So what kind of stuff in the brown box that you took clipped out and put to say, okay, this goes AD and D. There's, um, there's a distinction. The Holmes edition was way, way, way watered down with the violence and the demons and the devils and the dragons and the lethality was way watered down because we wanted that to be for neophytes. Whether they were children of nine or young adults of 17 we wanted a watered-down version. Also, we were taking tremendous from the religious right who thought we were calling up demons. That was a, re- you know, we laugh about it now. That was real back then. They threatened our livelihood. Had they gotten more traction, they would have hurt us. As it was, they brought us a lot of negative publicity. And for a while, I'm sure they dampened sales. All right. So Holmes was a, a step away from that. It's not going to be, it's not going to have the dark stuff. Rules heavy AD&D was for the reason being we needed rules to run the tournaments by. These are the rules. We, we dropped the guys of Tom Bombadil making it up on our own, making it up as we went. Everybody's campaign being different. Now, to this day, everybody's campaign is different. To this day, unless you're one of these R.A.W. Uh, goose steppers about rules as written, everybody's campaign uses different interpretations of the rules. Let's face it. you got six buddies sitting there, and they all think rule so-and-so is stupid. Then you modify it to whatever you all can agree to. That's the ethic of the old school of wargaming with minis. That's where it's all started. Miniatures are the beginning. They are this the rootstock of our hobby, our miniatures, replaying at the world. All right? Prussian war games, flats. Those are the roots of our hobby today. Hmm. The original game was written for minis players because Gary didn't know who to aim it at other than minis players because it came out of a minis campaign. Minis guys were campaigning all along. A club like the Minnesota group, a club like the Lake Geneva group, a club like the Chicago group, Okay, what are you buying this year? Well, I'm going to fill out the Prussians. Okay, I'm going to fill out the Hanoverians. Clubs would do that. Tom Tom Wom was known for his Brunswickers. Black uniforms with yellow facings. Now, Tom Wom's Brunswickers were from 1746. They fought fought Napoleonic Wars. They fought in any kind of war. They didn't kind of place him because that's the way many groups did it. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So that is the ethical, the moral basis 
of where this whole hobby started. Never forget that. Know that, and you'll have a better understanding of it. And that's the we are, yeah. we are a collegiate group because we share a very small shared interest, and a lot of people think we're weird. Well, we've always kind of thumbed our noses at them. I, I'm sorry. I, What's your question again? Well, I have. Th this is perhaps the most important question I've asked this entire interview. Okay. Ready? I say you ready? I'm braced. Hey. If I cast magic missiles and the target has cast a mirror image spell, does my magic missile always get the real image, the real? Magic missile always hits for <laughs> one to three points. Magic missile always hits for one to three points. You're, 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 not, you're not even, you're not gonna even give me the, uh, the mirror image. Magic missile always hits. That poor little hedge w wizard who's hid behind the mead sacks for the whole fight finally can go finish off that one-point troll lying there groggy on his feet. Well, troll's a bad example. They regenerate. That one-point ogre lying there, he can do something and actually contribute to the party. Yes, Magic missile always hits. What's interesting, though, is, is if I recall correctly, the Dr. Holmes, ba Holmes basic, it uh, stayed the old way, right? So it sounds like maybe it was a bit of a compromise, right? I believe in Holmes basic, there's a to-hit roll. Well, there shouldn't be. I might not have won that one. I know I won that argument in advanced, and I, I argued with Gary on that for months. Long you are knew we were going to redo the rule. I told him it was a stupid rule. Was Len Lakafka angry at you? And he did it for that reason. Gary did not like magic users. I've told people that so many times in recent years. He didn't want magic users to take over the campaigns. He believed heroes should have the say in the world. Heroes like the paladins of old, like the Harold Lamb stories. That's the ethic Gary was raised on. That's where the game came from. Eurocentric heroes. Well, now, he, criticized for being racist, being white. Yeah, now today it's easy to go back and say that. But no, he wasn't. That's the books. You know, look at Appendix N. That's where it comes from. Well, I, I, I appreciate that you published in Dragon 33 Len Lakafka's uh, opinion on magic. He, he seemed to be very displeased with your victory on magic missiles. He says, Gary and I have gone around in a circle on this spell for some period of time. Uh, and, and so, it, he, <laughs> Lenny was just, he had butt burn because I won on that one. <laughs> I won on others. You know, he had a whole, I'm trying to remember, he had a whole character class that we, we used. Or Lenny had a lot of him. Lenny goes back to the Chicago Club and the Lake Geneva Club, which is, their meeting on Gary's back porch is the beginnings of Gen Con. This was in the 60s, okay? Um, long before D&D &D was even a gleam in its daddy's eyes, to use an old cliche. Um, yeah, well, Lenny and I argued about a lot of things, but that's the thing about being a gamer. Lenny and I will have different opinions on Facebook, but I respect his opinion, and he respects mine. And like I said, he's one of the few guys in the business older than me. So, of course, I'm nice to him. <laughs> Lenny's good people. But he had his idea. You know, 
as I recall at one time, Lenny was uh, espousing the spell point system. Mm-hmm. Well, that was the worst abomination I'd ever heard. And Gary was, you know, first time I, it, that showed up in um in one of the fanzines, Alarms and Excursions, or one of those. It's the only name, that's the only name that I remember, Lee Gold's old thing. Um, and I read it to him, and, and I, I swear to God, he visibly shuddered. <laughs> what a horrible idea. <laughs> you know, because he saw it as making ma- magicians more powerful. Because if they had all those points at their, at their, uh, at their, you know, at their uh, beck and call, then they had more choices. That's why, you know, you have to read The Dying Earth by Jack Vance. You have to read at least one of those books to understand how magic works in the old game and why it worked that way. But hey, he said from the very beginning, anybody that ever asked him, where's that stupid magic come from? Jack Vance and The Dying Earth. He's told him that, you know, he's always been real upfront about that. And if you don't like it, well, we were always in the opinion back then, if you didn't like it, change it. But then we had to do AD and D, which said, "Quit changing it." <laughs> and, and that's the eternal ch- uh, tension between the do-it-yourself, you know, comes with a framework. To we've got to run cons. We have to have a common lexicon that we can all, you know, it's. Well, somebody posted one day that I'm I'm to blame with Gary for the uh, inception and rise of rules lawyers. I guess I am. What a horrifying thought. It's like I somehow created a deadly bacteria. I can't stop it now. And it's all my fault. Oh, I let the genie out of the bottle or I spoiled spoiled the agar or something. But isn't that what a great work is, is that people can take the same text and focus on one part of it. You know, you have the rules lawyers, you have people, the OSR tradition. It's it's because they're, they're not looking at its totality. And again, like you said, there's the sense of... We're giving you all this, if, if this is a common lexicon that you can use and it's great because you all can speak the same language because you don't have the background, to your point. People like Dan yeah. and I, we didn't start till later and subsequent generations are even further removed. But here's the essence of the game and you can choose what denomination you are and, and you have it, and that's and that's okay as long as everyone's in the same. If you're all in the same church of the rules lawyer, it's fine. If you're all rules lawyers, it's when it's when the Catholics get with the Protestants is when there's the problem. Using that term, well, it depends on if the Protestants are Episcopalian. Because <laughs> there's so little difference between there. Right. I was raised Catholic. I, I started going Episcopalian. This was many years ago, and I, I I once told a joke to the bishop about how you got Episcopalians adding water to Catholics and how much water, whether you got a high Episcopalian or a low Episcopalian. But your point is, your point's very valid. Um, but the, the thing was, it, it, the, the thing that makes us, us, us grogs consistent is, you know that we're going to be close. There's going to be little idiosyncrasies. Just like if you go to France, you got a good idea what's going on. Right. It's a little idiosyncrasies. You know, screw, screw the language because everybody speaks English to one degree or another. So uh, English aside, you go to Portugal, you know what's going on, but there's going to be little idiosyncrasies. Well, you go to any of us old school guys, you're going to know what's going on and we're just going to have our little idiosyncrasy. But you're going to have enough of a framework to feel comfortable being there. Um, 
I was very reluctant for many years to play in celebrity games. I didn't want to wear, wave my bare fanny in front of all those people, you know, showing my ineptitude. But um, I got comfortable with it finally because because of what it was they were used to for charity and stuff. And finally, it was like, yeah, okay, so what? I wave my, you know, my, my fanny ends up being bare and waving in the breeze at some point. All right, I'll laugh along with everybody else. And I learned to live, to live with the idiosyncrasies of the people running those celebrity games. They were all basically the game that they were running, but not quite. Right. And all the games we play are the game that we're running, but not quite. And that's good. And, you know, the, the, the bottom line is if you're having fun, fine. If you're not having fun, find something else to do, a different game to play, a different DM, you know, whatever the case, you know, a different group to play in. If your playing style doesn't fit their playing style, God knows there's enough playing styles out there. Just judging from all the uh, interesting uh, Facebook pages that I've been asked to join. Yeah. There's some things, there's some playing styles that I, I would just rip their throats out. The, the thing that really, really is Aggravating me and totally understandable is why do we have to have, what is it, 30 some player classes now? Mm -hmm. Are you kidding me? Uh, our thief, our hobbit, started as a fighter. He was always a fighter because we didn't have the thief class back then, yeah. all right? But why do you need, you know, um, uh, um, an Ethiopian sun dancer? Or, you know, I mean, my God, I saw a list on Facebook the other day of character classes that have proliferated uh, down, down into 5E. Are you kidding me? You got to have one of those Zaki D100s to decide what you're going to be. <laughs> and then you got all the rules that only apply to you. Are you kidding me? There's way too much complication. I suggested on my video last night that all the DMs that are locked in here and looking for something to do is, Watch some Forged into Fire episodes. Look at the weapons they create. And then you can make your own chart of how those incredibly vicious and wicked weapons are really good against this kind of armor, but really not so good against it. And you can just, you know, write yourself and spin yourself into a Mobius strip, I guess. I don't know. Um, you know, how, how detailed do you need it to be to sit around with a bunch of people and have fun? That's it. That is, that is again, the ultimate... Uh... And I'm glad there's a fifth edition. You're my son who's 17. He, that's the edition he plays with his friends. He plays first edition with me because there won't be a ninth edition if we don't keep moving. You know, we ha there has to be. Well, that's fine. I don't criticize any of the editions. Well, except 3 and 3.5 because they were just dreck. But, you know, I don't care what edition you play. I don't care if you're playing 3 or 3.5. If you're having fun, right. the whole purpose of a game is a diversion. We're not Prussian colonels sitting around figuring out the next offensive. We're playing this game because we're having fun. Yep. And it doesn't matter what game you're playing. You know, it does not matter. I've got this really goofy game based on where the wild things are. Mm. Okay? It's real simple. It's based on kids and that. But it's fun. So if you're sitting there playing with a bunch of kids, uh, you sh should you hide in the basement to do it? No. Have fun. Right. Do it. The whole thing is this is supposed to be a diversion, not a lifestyle choice. Well, way, way too many people invest too much of their personalities and too much of themselves into this thing that's supposed to be a hobby. Mm. And that bothers me. That disturbs me.
So, so, so Dan, what you got? Uh, maybe just one last question. Uh, I know you play tested a lot of adventures. I know you were you were the druid in uh, Hamlet. Yeah, right. Yeah. Tim the lusty <laughs> druid. Yeah. Right. Did, did <laughs> you have really body songs when I wasn't there to sing when I got there because I couldn't always make every play test because of my wife's work schedule, but they made up these. Oh my God! It's, oh, they were awful. They were wonderful actually, but they were offline. I can't remember most of them, <laughs> which is probably probably <laughs> the song Jim the Lusty Druid. He loved everything in the woods. <laughs> in, in, James, it sounds like your character. In, in, yeah. That's right. In ways he shouldn't have. That's yes, uh, yes. But they had no rules against it back then. That's right. The, the druids were the druids were men, and the animals were afraid. I got you. That's the kind of thing. You know Dan the Bard. Uh. Uh-uh. You know yes. Oh, uh, a little. I'm going to get a plug for Dan the Bard. Look him up. He does songs about playing D&D that are absolutely right on true and funny as hell. And he's even doing live concerts during this uh, shelter in place. All right. He's done four of them. Find one on YouTube and watch him. Well, They're funny. We'll put it on uh, the links for, on the show notes. Absolutely. Dan yeah. the Bard. Hopefully you'll hear the one about fighting the owlbear and how the druid kept putting him together wrong. Every time the bear killed him, it's just hilarious. <laughs> just hilarious. And I really understand games and playing. And then he sings about them and makes these wonderful parody type songs that are just great. Bard Camp, great one. Second edition, picked on the first edition, got his ass kicked because he forgot they had to be fighters first in first edition. <laughs> so, I mean, he, he picks up the, 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 the quirks and foibles even between the editions. And I, I love the guy um, and um, in, the, in the nicest way. Right. And um, if I can give him a plug on this, Dan the Bard. And this time we need, in, we need entertainment. Absolutely. Uh, I only do the curmudgeon once a week, but I do the others every day. I read for little kids. I got the loveliest letter yesterday. The man said he had four daughters who just love listening to me read stories. Uh, well, that just, uh, that awesome. just, warms my, just warms my grandpa heart, you know? Just warms it right up. Awesome. Awesome. Yep. James, we, we should do that with the DMG, maybe. What? Yeah. Just to, <laughs> to sleep. Yeah, you can walk in. Insomnia, uh-huh. let me read the uh, random uh, level three monster chart. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So, couple, that, that's, that's about as stupefying as you can get, right? The, uh, so, so, uh, so, Tim, when did you separate from, because you said you took a long break from it, so you left in the 80s then? Well, yeah, I I, uh, I left TSR and I started uh, Manzac Publishing Adventure Gaming Magazine, and I uh, got 13 issues of those out. But we were now in the throes of the Reagan's uh, trickle-down economic failure when an, an inordinate number of small mom-and-pop businesses across the country, across the board, were going out of business because it didn't trickle down. And a large number of them were mom-and-pop hobby shops which was a large bit of my circulation. And I wasn't getting paid. And they were going bankrupt. And I was getting, you know, if I was lucky, I'd get 30 cents on the dollar, but it took you six years to get it. Mm. Well, I couldn't, you know, I'm so I, after bleeding out of my own pocket for a while, I had to shut that down. And I said, screw it, I'm tired of this business, to hell with y'all. I'd been involved with running a, a very successful game convention here in Cincinnati that we'd drawn... Uh, Almost, I think right around 4,000 people. Um, we had a big uh, national f- um, 
uh, Ace of Aces tournament. Al Nasi came and, and we had like 300 people flying in it. That little Jim Wampler shot me down. Uh, <laughs> we've since become best buddies. Um, and so I got, I got on with my life. I became a soccer coach. I sold flooring. I measured things. Um, I, um, signed people up for, um, tech schools, went out and did presentations at high schools. I did a lot of stuff. Um, I became a soccer announcer for my kids. Um, I became a lot, you know, I, I was an official. I got for 20 years. I worked with an organization, helped build an organization here in Cincinnati called fishing has no boundaries, work with people with disabilities, to take them out on a big fishing expedition, uh, once a year and get them out on boats. Uh, that was especially uh, gratifying. And after 20 years, I decided I'd had enough, let somebody else enjoy it. Um, so I just kind of lived a normal life. And then in 06, uh, Frank Menzer saw that I was selling textbooks because I just got my master's in education at uh, Xavier University. And I was uh, 57. And uh, yeah, 57. And um, he sent me an email. Are you the same Tim Caskey? I am, et cetera. And so we started corresponding and he wanted to know what books I had. And he, he was real, real helpful and told me what they were, you know, essentially were worth and, you know, how to sell them. And he invited me to come be a, um, a, um, a guest auctioneer at the Gen Con auction in 06. And so I said, okay, I'd come. And I, it's just, um, downtown uh, Indianapolis is about 95 miles from my door. And um, as I was driving into Indy from the east side, I saw all these little signs hanging off the, the light post saying, Welcome Gen Con. And I, I kind of thought, Where'd I go through the warp? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was so different uh, from before because, hell, even when I lived in Lake Geneva, the people would go, oh, You know, when are the weirdos coming? And this was before cosplay or anything like right. that, you know. And uh, so, you know, here was the city of Indy embracing this all. And so I'm kind of, you know, stunned by the size of Gen Con and everything. And then Frank's saving me for the celebrity auction uh, or the not the celebrity auction. It, well, I was a celebrity auctioneer at the collectibles. And so um, you know, so there's this long and my, my next, you know, my, my new co-auctioneer is and he goes on starts listing things I've done. And finally, oh, God, I'm embarrassed by now. You know, I want to turn around and go the other way. And all these people stood up and gave me a standing ovation. And I was I was literally gobsmacked. I stood in place. I didn't know what to do. And my feet were nailed to the floor. Because I had walked away from gaming, kind of pissed off. Uh, I realized that the bug wasn't dead because I got back into gaming uh, about three years previously uh, on uh, a computer game called uh, Age of Wonders. Hmm. And in the second edition, they had a scenario editor. So you could do what they called uh, maps. We would call scenarios. So I started designing maps, and I got a good response. And so they were very creative, and I realized I had some creative juices. I'd always been an editor. Now I wanted to create things. And so um, I got involved with this um, huge um, mod that was originally done by a guy in Australia. That you know, Age of Wonders is an astonishing game. It was an orphan for almost a decade but the players kept it alive. The players modded it. Um, if you were a Glorantha fan, okay, if you like Red Bear, White Moon, you could go plug in their mod 
and all your units would be in the appropriate colors and the appropriate and the, the nationalities. Would be, you know, it was a very, very moddable game, which I still don't know how to do. But um, I just, I, you know, I, I saw the, the beauty of this thing. So the guy said to me, he said, oh, i got to create these new uh, heroes, and uh, you want to stab at it? And I go, well, I don't know. Send me the pick, you know, send me the sprites. And he sent me the sprites, and I knew who they were. I don't know how. I just knew who they were. And so I, I wrote up these little things, and I, I sent them back to him. And he says, what, you did these already? I said, yeah, I knew who they were when they came. I sent them back like the next day. And so I ended up doing, I don't know, I created 80 or 90 unit types and characters and stuff for Age of Wonders for the Dweeks mod. And I realized I still had some creative juices. And then I started writing adventures for uh, collectors, for this collectors group every year when I went to Gary Con, or when I went to Gen Con. And I'd ha I hand I home published, you know, comb binding the whole nine yards. Uh, the dot, well, I don't think I, I think I was, I think I had an inkjet when I started. I don't think I was still. And uh, they would they would pay uh, sublime amounts of money for the limited edition copies that I was doing just because they had my name on them. I'm like, <laughs> so uh, I'm just kind of very softly found my way back in, and um, um, I, I enjoy it, and I I appreciate. Uh, I, I think some of the respect I'm granted is overblown. But I appreciate it nonetheless, and uh, I don't worry about you know the only I've only won besides a couple of strategy club awards back in the TSR days, which were kind of fixed anyway because they were all voted on by our fans. Mm -hmm. um, I did win a Gygax award in '17. I'm very very proud of that at Gary Con. Um, don't have my name on a lot of stuff, but I have my finger. My fingerprints on a lot of stuff. Mm. I have an award. Oh, she and I. Uh, no, you, you got to move it over some. Oh, sorry. Yeah. The famous Elise and I. Elise and I, Elise got droped into being the presenter that night. And what you don't see is the hurried conversation that we had before. That was supposed to be a satirical picture. Yeah, <laughs> like, oh, here we are. And then we, 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 we thought they were going to take another one of us smiling, and they didn't. <laughs> So we're our own joke kind of bit us in the butt. We still, I see her at Gary Con and we laugh about that picture. We strike that post at each other. <laughs> Tim, Tim had, had, you, had you stayed in contact at all with Gary after you left TSR? And if not, did you ever reconnect with him before his passing? Yeah, um, we reconnected um, at a um, Lake Geneva game convention. The troll guys from uh, Troll Lords used to come up and uh, help Gary put on this little, very small local convention uh, at Lake Geneva. And so I came up to the last two of those. Mm. And uh, Gary and I reconnected. I had since learned a lot about what had gone on and why what had happened uh, that caused me to leave um, in playing at the world. I was not privy to a lot of that information didn't give it when it started coming out. I didn't care because I wasn't in those circles anymore. Um, and so I understood and uh, we reconciled. I, I understood that he was basically powerless um, to uh, do anything um, other than what happened because I was unaware that the Blooms had control by that time. And I, had I known that the Blooms had been in control at that time, I would have been 
myself counting the days because I knew Brian, uh, I knew Kevin couldn't wait to get rid of me because of a, a run-in I'd had with his wife. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we reconciled. And then I'd been at the funeral and Gary Khan, oh, except we had a, a really, really heavy snowstorm here where I live down in uh, north northwestern uh, Ohio and, and uh, northern Kentucky. We had a bitch of a snowstorm clear up almost to the um, um, all the way through Indiana, almost to the Wisconsin border. And I just couldn't make the drive. There's just, just no way with the, you know, the vehicle I had at the time, I was going to try to drive by myself through, uh, you know, blizzard conditions. And so I missed zero, but I've been to all the ones since. Um, and will continue as long as I'm uh, physically capable of making it. And I couldn't, none of us could make it this year. So we all uh, did it virtually. And it worked out good. And I'm going to do it on uh, Zoom now myself. I figured out how to do it. Figured out how it figured out that it does work. So um, watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we we reconciled. Everything was cool. Good to hear. I still loathe Kevin Bloom, who ever, virtually everyone has fallen out of contact with. Um, I felt mm, I felt empathy for Brian losing his mind uh, as he did uh, with what he had. Um, but I was, uh, it's well known that I was never, uh, uh, his friend, um, after about, well, I went, when Kevin came, uh, that the whole dynamic of the company changed. Yeah. Um, well, and, well, we, well, we want to thank you for, for your contributions. Uh, it means, uh, quite a lot to people like us who, you know, you, you, you'd sort of moved on when we got into the game in the early eighties, but, uh, what I you had no help- idea anybody was going back and looking at stuff so old that it had my name in it. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, okay. And maybe, maybe one last question is, so what's been your reaction, you know, with the OSR, with the old school revival, people like James and I are a product of the old school revival about several years ago, after having taken about 30 years off, we decided to get back into it. And so uh, what's been, what is your reaction? Had you ever, I assume you never had imagined there'd be anything like an old school revival, which would of course generate such interest in the contributions people like you made. Well, I prefer to use that R as renaissance rather than revival, because I don't think it was ever pulse dead. Uh, we were hiding in our own little isolated cells playing uh, in, the, in the old school style. Um, I used to have a group here in uh, in Cincinnati. Jim Wampler was one of them that I would play test my stuff when I was still writing, and we played very much old school. And we were all old school players except two guys who were obviously three or three point five because they did nothing but sit on their ass and wait for us to tell them what was going on. Uh, <laughs> they never asked questions or anything. So uh, we we figured out later after the group broke up. But uh, I'd like to think that. I think it's great because I think a lot of us that play old the old way, I, I feel like I worship the old Norse gods or something. Uh, <laughs> those of us that play the old way um, are uh, delighted to see more people wanting to play our way and therefore creating more content to play it. Well, so, uh, so Tim, where can people find you online? You mentioned you're thinking about doing Zoom games. You're on Facebook. Uh, Kind of how I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm, I'm on Facebook and just under my under Tim Casker or Cascoid. I uh, got a page that somebody else curates for me. It's kind of a professional page, and um, I do YouTube video called "The Commotion in the Cellar," and I've done 120 numbered ones. 
It must be up to well over 130 now because I've done a bunch of others before I started doing them on YouTube. Then I brought them over. And I'm doing uh, Tales from the Cellar. That's a little three to five minute thing each night about, hey, I'm, we're all here in lockdown together and, you know, talking about what's going on. Or, uh, occasionally, I, I didn't expect to get comments on those, but I do. So occasionally I answer them. And then every night I write, I read, uh, I produce stories from the cellar. And I, oh, hi, my name is Tim. And I'd like to read you. Last night I wrote um, a feast. I read a rather a feast of peas. And, uh, <laughs> You know, I, it's it's just something fun to do. And hey, if kids are enjoying it, I find out there's some adults enjoying it too. Fine, they don't have to stand up and be counted. I don't care. I know some people like to listen to my voice. That's fine. Um, I was a soccer announcer for several years. Uh, I, I understand. I, I know I have a distinctive voice, and I know how to use it. Um, so, uh, if, if that helps, if, if that and um, it is, it's entertaining people. It's helping people get through these times. That's great. And and you know, and that's all on the same YouTube channel. Yeah, well, yeah. You just go go find me, Tim Cass. Okay, great. And he, he does have. Or oh, look sorry, up Cascoid, or look up Cascoid. You'll use one or the other. You'll find me there. Okay, great. He does have a great voice. Yeah. You know, it would be great. A Tim, it would be great if he would say, "This is Tim Cask, and you're listening to Grog Talk." Because James, could you take that and splice that? Yeah, we, I'm sure we have to pay licensing and and. Uh, nah, I've, I've done that for a couple of other people too. I don't care. Of course, we could. Uh, yeah, uh, I've done voiceover work um, when we were building that that organization that helps people with disabilities. Yeah. We we made a tape or a, you know a, a DVD, and I did the voiceover on that. I was kind of like I did kind of a Tom Bodette laid back type of style. <laughs> <laughs> You need, uh, you need voice limiters on me if I do anything other than laid back and mellow. Because <laughs> my voice does tend to boom. I once hey. announced a soccer all-star game without a PA system. It blew out just as the game was starting. So I stepped outside of the booth and announced both lineups with just my lungs. And people on the other side told me at halftime that they heard every name. That's great. So I've got the pipes. I know that. I just, I have to keep them down because my wife sleeps upstairs. <laughs> when I'm making tapes at night, I got to be quiet. Just mm. people the wrong impression. They meet me at a con and go, con, you're loud. <laughs> uh, all right, now what does he want me to say? Oh, well, I, I was just kidding. I was teasing, but I mean, if, if, if you want to say, uh, this is Tim Kask and you're listening to Grog Talk, that would be great in a very radio-esque voice. This is Tim Kask and you're listening to Grog Talk. Perfect. That was awesome. Thank you, sir. This is Tim Cask, and you're listening to Grog Talk. Wonderful. Use the one you like. Uh, perfect. He's, That's great. He's a true professional. He wants to give us a, 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 couple, a couple to work with. I'll give yeah. you a second take. You can, you can mix them back and forth. <laughs> That's right. So the, I think the last thing we do is it's, it's custom for us. Go Wait, I got one more. Yep. This is Tim Cask, and you are listening to Grog Talk. Oh, I like that one. That oh, that, that's our Saturday night one. If we ever have a Saturday <laughs> night episode. That's, there you go. Now you got to play with. That's like the Barry White. That's right. <laughs> Put on some Tim Cass. <laughs> go, go to my YouTube. I got 120 of them on there. Perfect. Plus, plus, if you want to read about the old days, if you actually still read, yeah. go to dragonsfoot.org. Yep. There's a 132-page yeah. thread of mine. It's locked. You can't add, you can't put anything on it anymore, but you can read it. 
Okay. There's I'm... a lot of stories about, about the old days down there. A lot of stories. Okay, I'm sorry. I can't help it. There's got to be one more here. Because that one was like a Barry White one, right? You got to do like a Barry White one with – this is Jaru Ashstaff. Isn't that – isn't – in a very sort of sexy – all right. This is Jeru Ashstaff. You are listening to Grog Talk. Perfect. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> that is great. Well, when you, when you decide what you're going to use, you got to you got to play it back for me so I can hear it. Absolutely. Okay, Just, you, you, you have approval rights. With all my videos, I listen to them before I pu publish them, just to make sure that they aren't awful. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's no problem. That's, right. So the last so the last thing we do is we as custom. If you have a D10 near you, do you have a D dice near you? Oddly enough, I got a sheep's knuckle bone. Uh, well, usually we do a D10, but for you, we could do a D6 and give you a modifier. That's all. That's fine. <laughs> we, we we roll to see how good of an episode right, it was. From one to ten. One being oh. horrible, ten is is amazing. So. The dice don't lie. That's right. The dice, the dice giveth, the dice taketh away. Oh, I get a plus four then. Is that right? Yeah, we'll give you a plus four. Absolutely, Tim. So you're, you're doing five to ten basically at this point. So we'll uh, we'll give you. That. Wait a second. Wait a second. You wrote an article on how to if you've lost dice. Oh yeah. What to so, do when the dog eats your dice? So I mean, I, we won't pull that out though. But go ahead. Well, I can use um, I can use a clock. And look at the clock and see what uh, quadrant the second hand is in. Let's see, I've got to find the clock. Oh, wait, I got one over there. Four. Okay. Took me a while to focus. Uh, you know, it, I think it was clearly us. I didn't research enough. That's right. There wasn't enough research. You didn't, I didn't, you didn't ask what clothes he was wearing at the first uh, meeting. Hey, right? Right? University shirt ought to be worth extra points. That's right. We give you a plus there one you for the shirt. And I, right. am wearing, I am wearing my, my, oh, my awesome. very rare hat. There's only three or four of those were ever made. A friend of mine in Kentucky made them. And um, Susie, uh, that works, with, uh, works for Frog God, he used to work for Stefano. She's got one. She got the blue one. That was a mistake. <laughs> kind of gully. So she got it. Then she wore it to Dollywood and posted a selfie wearing it. And uh, I have one, and the guy that made them has one. I think that's all there are. Awesome. Right. Well, we, we will, we're, we're having our convention, not 4,000, in uh, Orlando in October. And hopefully by then the world will be somewhat back to normal, and we'll have a bunch of old school gaming. And so, Tim, uh, thank you for your time, for your what you're doing, and we're very excited. It's like I have a lot else to do, sheltering in place. That's right. Hey, this has, been, this has been the best thing for us. So many people who, uh, they're, they're like, oh, we'll come on your show, absolutely, because uh, we're imprisoned here. We're better than prison. That's what we tell people. We have nothing else to do. It's very <laughs> flattering. Good thing my wife and I really like each other. <laughs> That's right, 50 um, years. <laughs> Well, thank you again, Tim. I really appreciate your time, and sure. and that was thank a lot. You. And again, we'll post all your links up there, and we'll definitely check in with you. And and when I edit the uh, the video, I'll get the snip, <laughs> snippets out. And not a dry cough. Not a dry. That's good. Well, you take care of yourself, sir. I mean, 
Thank you. Know, unfortunately, I, it's, it's a scary, scary time. So on behalf of- It is, but hey, we're Americans. And I don't say that like a flag-waving Trumper. I say that as a historian. We always find a way. We, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. So, uh, so on behalf of Grog Talk, I'm James. I'm Dan. And that's Tim. Tim, thank you again. And we will see you next you. week on Grog Talk. Take care. This is Big Abushi Puppy Production. All rights reserved.